This is Spartan 117. Anyone hear me? Over. Isolate that signal. Master Chief, you mind telling me what you're doing on that ship? Sir, finishing this fight. Welcome back, everyone, to Finish the Fight, a Halo podcast. I am your host, Jesse Reiners. And I am your host, Alex Kendall. And before we get into the topic at hand today, we'll first go over some of the more exciting recent events that have been going on within the Halo community. Mm -hmm. So first of all, the most recent MCC flights for Halo Reach on PC just wrapped up. And I've been seeing a lot of really cool videos and a lot of really interesting things that people have had to say about it. But it seems like... They're already fixing the bugs that were there previously, and it just seems like it's going to be awesome. It looks beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's nice to play. It's it's the controls are pretty much similar to exactly what you were used to, mm-hmm. um, just tweaked a little bit, and it just it just looks like the game it should have been. Yeah, even just watching like occasionally comes up on our Discover page, just seeing how like clean and smooth it looks. Now I kind of want a gaming computer because this well, looks there great. There you go. Yeah, and then also some people are kind of. Finding some things on Forge, and they're unsure of if this is uh, some leaked things that are new to there or something that shouldn't be accessed, like a Phantom and a Seraph. Like, I'm really excited to see if those actually make it to the final cut. Yeah, it it would make sense. And for a company doing this and porting it over, I mean, they should know if you have assets like this, someone's going to Mm -hmm. data mine it and Mm -hmm. figure it out. Yeah, that was happening in some of the more recent flights like people were mm-hmm. already going in and seeing some of the other armor permutations and everything like that yeah so so if you already know that you're either not worried about it or you want it to happen mm-hmm. so that people will spread it because if you just throw it in there it's, it's cool and it's newsworthy but if you have someone like mine it out mm-hmm. then it becomes like a whole kind of thing in the internet is it going to be in there is it not so it gives it more news yeah and and i can't emphasize you know as i said like the the, the game like just kind of like these nuanced graphics for all the spartans and the elites it's really cool. It's really exciting. So mm-hmm. it, it's going to be awesome. 343 also just released the specs that you'll need on your gaming computer to play Reach. Yeah, which which for the most part, if you've had a computer the last five years, you're running smooth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see a lot of people commenting, and I've read a few threads, that not a lot of people out there have have any complaints. And as he said, it's a 360 game, so it should be yeah, pretty simple. Yeah, because it's not like you're really beefing it up and, and adding more to it. Like, you're obviously... Adding more with visual specs and bringing up to 4K and things like that. But, I mean, you're only going to need, like, an i5 chip to run 4K. You're needing, like, a three-digit NVIDIA, I think, like, a 770 or something. Yes. It's like a baby card. It's like a laptop thing. I'll take your word for all of this. Yeah. So, so, I mean, (laughs) you know, what you've built to, like, you know, run your Minecraft maps and whatnot, Mm -hmm. you can also use to uh, live it up in uh, some reach. Exactly. So, let's move on to the meat and potatoes of today's episode Halo Wars, which is kind of, I think, the first black sheep I think we've gotten in the series. Mm -hmm. And, you know, say what you will, it definitely was a game that did a lot, not only for the Halo franchise, but I think the RTS genre on console. Because we'll talk about it before. That was kind of like a don't ask, don't tell kind of thing. Like, should we do an RTS on a console? And everyone's like, no. Well, it's tough to say because... With real-time strategy games, it's so much micromanagement that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So taking from a keyboard where you can have multiple presets and 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 use the number of keys for these things, and you know, 
having your layout, it's different on a controller. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have maybe you can have the, the you know D pad do this and have these. So it, it it was tough to have those micromanagement things, especially like as we get into what Ensemble did before with like uh, Age of Mythology and Age of Empires, which you could create single units mm-hmm. and kind of micromanage that. Halo Wars changed it up a bit and gave you kind of like a squad almost for the units. And they they kind of even changed up that this wasn't so much a straightforward. RTS, they kind of made or made up a genre for it, as we'll touch on later. But I think overall, it's it's got some controversy even with the development, which we'll talk about here soon. But let's just get into it. So Halo Wars is an RTS Xbox 360 game set 21 years before the events of Halo Combat Evolved, developed by Ensemble Studios and published by Microsoft. It was released February 26, 2009. It was not only the last game, but the only game on Xbox 360 Ensemble would ever develop. Mm -hmm. So to touch base, we're going to jump into it a bit more, but to touch base on Ensemble Studios, it was an RTS game developer based out of Dallas, Texas, formed in 1995. The studio was bought by Microsoft in 2001 as an internal developer. Um, I know they were working on a couple projects for them, and I think one that they really ended up pushing towards was Halo Wars. Mm -hmm. And so Ensemble Studios ended up closing its doors on January 29th, 2009, noting that Halo Wars be the last game they would produce. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for those of you that may not know Ensemble Studios that well, growing up with it, I loved it, because you got games like Age of Mythology, the Age of Empires series, um, Halo Wars, and uh, canceled, actually, Halo MMO Titan. Yep, we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. So before we go any further with Ensemble or, you know, the creation of Halo Wars, I want to touch base a little bit on just the fan Halo RTS games that are out there. So first we had Halogen, which never actually saw the light of day. So this was a mod for Command & Conquer 3 Generals, but it was canceled after Microsoft sent out a cease and desist order September 2006. We also have Sins of the Prophets, which we've talked about multiple times on the show now uh, this game is a mod for sins of the solar empire rebellion revolving around battles in space between the covenant the flood and the unsc developed by slugfest studios and then finally we have evolutions which is currently in the works this game is a mod for command and conquer tiberium this game will feature the following original campaign mode with over 64 missions all original and new units for both the unsc and the covenant a new resource system, new general powers based on the Halo universe, new multiplayer maps, and an original soundtrack. So a bit of everything wrapped into one. I get excited when I see stuff like, you know, basically they're they're trying to rehaul it entirely. And even seeing something like new soundtracks always gets me excited. So I, I would love for eventually this to come out. I know if you look at, you know, to find any information on this, look up Halo evolutions rts because if you look up halo evolutions you're going to get the novels that came Mm -hmm. out so you know now that we have that out of the way with let's move on to the halo franchise during halo 3's development so it's rather fitting that halo would eventually return to its roots as we all know by now the original halo was going to be an rts game before the many changes that were made As discussed in the Halo 3 episode, Bungie wanted to leave Microsoft and start developing new games, but the only way they could do that was by leaving the rights of Halo to Microsoft. In doing so, Bungie had to also produce Halo 3, Halo 3 ODST, and Reach. While this was happening, Microsoft looked to further expand the franchise, though taking it in a slightly different direction. Mm -hmm. And production for what would become Halo Wars actually started as early as 2004. Typically... You know, RTS games weren't seen on the console 
as we were saying earlier, and almost always reserved for the PC. Tony Goodman, the then CEO of Ensemble, revealed in 2006 that it was the time for RTS games to come to consoles, and that's what they were working on. In fact, he stated that they spent a whole year alone working on the controls for the console, which makes sense, because like I said, when you're jumping from a keyboard, Mm -hmm. it gives you plenty of keys to work with, to just a controller. Changes it up. And the whole game was designed around the Xbox 360 controller, Makes sense as it's coming out for the 360. Yeah. So let's move on to now developing Halo Wars. So Ensemble Studios was looking to leave the RTS genre and expand what they could really do. Though after multiple failed attempts at new projects, they started to develop yet another RTS. One reason that the studio was failing at new projects was due to the fact that Microsoft put a hold on any new hires. So they basically weren't able to hire people from outside studios who had worked on anything. Basically... Other than RTSs. Wow. Yeah. uh, So originally, the game Ensemble was working on was not going to be Halo Wars. In fact, it wasn't going to be a Halo title at all. The game was originally codenamed Phoenix, and it would have its own story. The setting would have been in a quote-unquote Earth-based science fiction setting. In 2004, when production first started on this project, they spent 12 to 18 months just in the controls alone, as we said earlier, trying to get it perfect for the Xbox 360 controller. Mm-hmm. They wanted to transition from the PC to the Xbox as seamlessly as they could, I guess mm-hmm. you'd say. And since there are a limited amount of buttons in the controller, they came up with the rule of eight, meaning there are only eight units you can choose from at most from your base. Yeah, and so while working on the controls, they needed a baseline to go off of. So they went into the Age of Mythology engine, more specifically the the, the Titans expansion, mm-hmm. and they're like, okay, we're going to use this as the base for our controls. Though they realized that this simply wasn't going to transfer very well, so they decided they needed to build the controls from the ground up for the game, and they started all from scratch. They would look to Command and Conquer 3 and the Battles of Middle-Earth 2 for the do's and don'ts of RTS controls. One of the first things that they implemented in the game was having a single resource that can be produced at each base instead of different resources at different bases. And eventually, Ensemble would scrap what they had been working on for two years to start from scratch and make a new engine that was specific to the 360 and not the PC. They wanted players to be able to differentiate between the two which makes sense. I mean, like, you don't mm-hmm. want some clunky control that's trying to be the PC version of it. Yeah. It's just like a, a, like a weird port. Yeah. So even before the title change, Ensemble wanted to push the idea of each map being different and leaving an impression on the player. With this innovation, it would also allow the artists and developers to create a more organic and unique terrain, kind of getting back to what Halo is itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, on these these forerunner structures where it is, you know, natural some places and not a natural cave, cave formation <laughs> in the other place. Well, exactly. The other thing with it as well is if you go back to the previous games they created within Empires and Mythology, um, even, a, a, I think, a Star Wars game they worked on, the maps you could do kind of its own generation of it. Like, mm-hmm. you can generate the map to be what you want it to be. It kind of be random for your bases and, and, and setups, and it could be, like, a Pangea, or it can be this. So, obviously, they want to take that idea of that, of having different maps, mm-hmm. but they're all going to be locked in. Yeah. yeah. So, it was, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good compromise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After Ensemble got the controls down to their comfort, they presented it to Microsoft. Microsoft liked it. They were thrilled about it. But they suggested kind of more heavily mm-hmm. that it become a Halo game. 
And they said that, you know, a, a new RTS IP wouldn't sell well, especially on console when you only had two or three games that were quote unquote successful, but not really. Yeah. You know, it just, it didn't work. As they said, it was, uh, it was, uh, the battle for Middle Earth 2 and Command and Conquer 3. Those were the, the two big ones, but a lot of people still flacked them for flaws they had. Because also around this time, we were starting to see more and more RTS titles that were going to start coming to consoles. And so Microsoft really, really needed this one to shine. So they needed to pair it with a name that that everyone knew. And this was around, you know, 2004 or 5 when, you know, we're seeing the start of the height of the Halo franchise. We're ending, you know, coming off of the, or, you know, we ended at the cliffhanger with Halo 2. Everyone's instantly hyped for 3, so let's put the Halo name on it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's smart because, like you said, you're, you're going back to the roots of what Halo would have been originally, or, or, or some type of it, and now you're just tacking that name on mm -hmm. to one of the biggest selling games of all time. And the thing that save the xbox that created xbox live basically mm -hmm. so why not just ride that exactly so unfortunately bungie would not be happy about this according to bungie the halo franchise was being quote-unquote whored out at that point and tony goodwin had this to say another problem was that bungie was never up for it bungie was kind of sore about the idea what they called it was whoring out of our franchise or something yeah, that didn't create a great relationship between us and Bungie. They viewed us as someone infringing on their on their franchise, which I hate that Ensemble did get some slack from this from Bungie when they were literally forced to do this by their bosses, by a bunch of people in suits. Yeah, but I think if you go back to old school Bungie in and of itself, mm, yeah, yeah. and you have kind of that mentality of like, let us do our thing, just mm -hmm. give us the money. Yeah. So now you have someone coming in and being like, those characters and the idea in the world you've created... Just give it to us, and we'll do something with it. So I think that's yeah. kind of in no, your mind. Well, and who knows if they knew? That's yeah. the thing. Like, who knows if 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 Ensemble really came to them and said, "Listen, guys, we don't want to do your game. We have to do your game." Who knows if that would have made relationships better? Yeah. Well, with this game being developed during Halo 3's development, Bungie refused to let Ensemble know what direction the game was going. Thus, they had to find a place in the timeline that wars would work without tampering with any established lore. Graham Devine, which was the lead writer for Halo Wars, and Joe Staten would, however, meet up early on in the concept stages and figure out a place in the timeline where it would work and fit in. Graham said that even though the game had beautiful cutscenes, the story was mainly being told through the gameplay. Ensemble was now tasked with making not only a game that Halo fans would vibe with, but a Halo story that wouldn't leave a sour taste in fans' mouths once they completed the game. Yeah, and so with this change of title also came a new set of challenges. The first being that they not only have to sell a good RTS game, but a good Halo game, because mm -hmm. you have that expectation. So instantly they're kind of like, well, shit. And another challenge was assets. Microsoft literally told them, like, this shouldn't be an issue because you can just reskin the assets you had. Yeah, just I, make just make new art. You're good. Yeah, I don't know a lot about Phoenix or how much they did have it developed, but they had enough to where they had like say the vehicles or mm -hmm. something like that going, and so they're just like just uh, just put a new skin on them, and 
it, it, you know, they were clearly like, that's not how that works. It's new sounds, how they work, what, what they do, yeah. everything. Yeah. So Ensemble had to now create all of their assets once again from scratch. Though Ensemble had plenty of Halo fans working for them, a good amount of the designers actually had never played Halo, Halo games. So that's first thing they had to do is, is buy a bunch of copies of Halo and play through it and mm-hmm. get that kind of artistic feel for it. Though Ensemble were also in luck because the Halo movie had just recently become canceled, so they had a lot of props from that and art from that to get an inspiration from. Mm -hmm. They would also look to Bungie to make sure that everything that they were doing got their seal of approval and they got they got, you know, feedback on anything they liked or didn't like. But at the end of the day, they still let Ensemble, you know, have creative control over the game as a whole. And they would also, you know, they would do this all through meetings. Mm-hmm. All the meetings were in person. That's that's one thing I read and they emphasized. So all the feedback was face-to-face. It was never over the phone or anything. They wanted to make sure they could do this as professional as possible and get, you know, the most genuine feedback that they could get. When it shows that for both sides, even if there's animosity for whether it's they're taking your character or they're doing this, that they both wanted this to do well, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it speaks volume to show that, like, the dedication to... The Halo franchise. Yeah. So another thing Ensemble really wanted to focus on was less economy building for bases and focus more on the combat itself, though they still wanted to make base building a foundation for the gameplay because it's an RTS. A goal for Ensemble was they wanted to make the gameplay a lot easier than most RTS titles. They didn't want a casual gamer to think that this game was more work than it needed to be. Graham Devine referred to this game as a quote-unquote arcade or action RTS. He felt that it was more straightforward gameplay and it would feel more like an Xbox game. Which makes sense and it's a great idea to go with. But one big thing with Ensemble is they struggled to derive too far away from the age gameplay when it came to implementing new things into the game. Ensemble would utilize Microsoft's game testing lab like Bungie did. Mm-hmm. So you'd have some people working in with you, seeing what's working, seeing what's not, which is great. Yeah. And they had almost three times as many focus groups for the game compared to their previous games. Yeah, like my, when this is this is Microsoft's baby, they're like, let's get as much feedback as possible on this. You have to. And so at first, a good amount of Halo fans were also RTS fans, so they would have a narrow it down specifically to Halo players who have never played an RTS before. Mm-hmm. One major component that would come from this was secondary abilities, most notable Marines throwing them grenades. Yeah, because I remember that was literally one of the first things that got us feedback. They're like, why can't we throw grenades in this game? And they realized they started adding those secondary abilities mm-hmm. to all your units and everything. So I loved seeing like that's why that was implemented, simply because it was... Halo fans, like, wanting a Halo game. Well, and it makes sense. So, like, if you compare to, like, um, in the Ages games, y- you could get something like that, which is mm-hmm. um, uh, an add-on you'd have to buy at, you know, one of the, the, the bases you had, whether it be for horses, artillery, you know, ground units, whatever. Mm-hmm. So now just having it be an active gameplay, you know, getting that, like, action RTS element mm-hmm. to it makes more sense. Yeah, and so from these tests, users would rank Halo Wars controls over the more popular console RTS games like Civilization, Command and Conquer, and Lord of the Rings Battle for Middle-Earth 2, according to, at the time, Xbox marketing manager Dan Cornelius. And moving on to the later stages of development, at E3 and 07, the first Halo Wars demo was presented, though, like Halo 2's original E3 demo, most of what we would see in the demo was eventually scrapped. As is Halo, uh... As is Halo uh, tradition. Yeah. 
And in September of 2008, Microsoft's corporate vice president, Shane Kim, would visit the studio and inform Ensemble that once they completed Halo Wars, the company would be permanently shut down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so only five or six months before the game was supposed to air. I mean, could you imagine that, like, for any of you out there, for anyone who doesn't work in here and works just maybe a night of five or what we do, mm -hmm. people are coming in like, yeah, what you're working on now, that's that's it. Then yeah. you're out of here. Yeah, like you, and this isn't like, a, this is a big project too with a, a lot riding on it. Yeah. And so it's like, hey, you're out of here, but you still have to create a great product. Yeah. Like, so just to let you know. Mm-hmm. And so the game designer and ensemble at the time, Bruce Shelley, felt this happened due to the recent change of management at Microsoft and the new employees not knowing or having a long relationship with Ensemble, which can make sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're looking at a studio that's hemorrhaging money, you're like, you're get rid of that. Yeah, well, you know, the first thing that a new manager is going to come in and, and any kind of role like that, some kind of vice president mm -hmm. role or anything like that, first thing you always have to do is... How can we find ways to save money? Yeah. And Ensemble was actually, you know, they, they had a track record of, of taking more time than they needed to to finish a game. And then there were the, the most expensive studio per capita. So th the most amount of money for just 100 or so employees, over mm -hmm. 100 employees. It's, it's hard to make sense of all of it. It is. And, and you know, going with Shelly, he felt that it was due to the fact that Microsoft wanted to push Xbox 360 development. And Ensemble was more known for developing PC games. Mm -hmm. And David Rippey claimed that they were the victims of their own success. I wish I, I could have... He never elaborated on that. I don't know. I, I found that, and I was like, what, what does that, that that's mean? That's like saying, like, you know, we were, we were too good. We were yeah. too good at the PC stuff that they just don't get us. They don't get what we're doing for the 360. Yeah. I, I, I get the idea. I get they were very successful, very successful RTS for the PC mm -hmm. creators. But, I, you know, I think it boils down to a lot of things. Like like you, like they said, yeah, they're coming from PC to 360 to develop these things. But you're also late on projects, like you said. You cost a lot. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to compete with Sony and Nintendo and all these others right now. Is this where we need to be spending money or should we develop the cash elsewhere? Yeah. Well, you know, they were also working on a Halo MMO title that would get canceled as well. And, and by the way, for all our listeners, we will be eventually doing a, ca a canceled Halo Projects episode, so we will be diving way more into that. But just so you know, during Halo Wars development, there was a Halo MMO game that was also being worked on by Ensemble Studios. So the team working on the MMO would get moved to the Halo Wars project. The original news of this studio being shut down was initially leaked to the public. Microsoft would claim that this was purely for financial reasons. Phil Spencer, who was head of Microsoft Game Studios, said this was purely, quote-unquote, the right thing for our business. Ensemble was the most expensive company, as we said, that Microsoft owned. Like, that's just fucking crazy. Yeah, it's crazy to think, in, like, the early 2000s, like, that's where their money went? Yeah. Um, and, and going back a little bit, when we talk about the Halo MMO, we'll get a bit deeper, but on the surface level, you ask yourself, why is an RTS company who's pretty much focused solely on that, which a little with a little bit of other things delved in between that, mm -hmm. why are they doing this MMO? And why is it Halo? I, yeah, it, it, like why are they why are they the ones working on that property? So it's it's interesting. We'll, like I said, we'll dive into that and get get you guys some more info on that. Yeah. So even though over a hundred employees would learn of this, only three would leave the company hearing this news. Ensemble would still carry on and finish the game or finish the fight. Ensemble <laughs> <laughs> Ensemble employees couldn't believe that they were being shut down, considering 
you know, they were the most expensive studio, but their games were super profitable. And I guess, were they profitable before Microsoft? Because that's kind of, you know, where it is and kind of where Microsoft needs to throw their money around and think of that idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, gr- granted, this this is what a lot of them had said in some some reports that I pulled up. But, you know, it just... Also, we had talked to, to Eric Arroyo about this again, and he said this stuff's super common. Like, even, even a studio can be profitable. It, you know, it's... It, these... Uh, the the decision to cancel these are done by guys in white suits who who have played a handful of games in their life. Yeah, and and you have to look at the margin for mm-hmm. some business talk. You have to look at the profit margin. So even if you are profitable, if you're not hitting a percentage mark on it, mm-hmm. then you might not be profitable enough or making more money than the last game. Exactly. So it's it's tough to say. And here's another reason you may have it is because Halo Wars was originally supposed to come out in 2008. But with the the stellar, might I say, stellar track record with Ensemble of delaying their games, uh, it was taking longer than projected to complete this project. It was a five-year development by the end of it, yeah. when it was supposed to be like a three- or four-year development at most. Yeah, so you're taking on another 20 25% time. Yeah. And so by the end of development, it was an all-hands-on-deck approach, just like the development of Halo 2. At one point... When playtests were needed, it was hard to find employees in the studio willing to stop their work in order to come play the game. This was against the norm, considering Ensemble had a rule that everyone in the company had to playtest a game once a week. Yeah. Eventually, the game would be finished, and it was shipped off. Halo Wars was the only Xbox 360 game that Ensemble would ever release. Well, it's the last game they'd ever produce as well. (laughs) From the ashes of Ensemble, we would see several studios form after the company was shut down. So we had Robot Entertainment, and Robot was started by Tony Goodman, offering many employees at Ensemble Studios a spot on the team. Robot was responsible for the Halo Wars updates and multiplayer until 2010 and would also develop the Age of Empires Online. Bonfire Studios. David Rippey would go on to start Bonfire, and it was staffed by former Ensemble employees as well. They were eventually bought by Zynga and renamed Zynga Dallas. The studio would eventually be shut down, though. Then we have New Toy Inc. Several developers from Ensemble would start New Toy and were also uh, bought by Zynga, renamed Zynga with Friends. Uh, Going back for New Toy, just to jump in here. That's where you get your chess with friends, your words with friends, your everything with friends, uh, was through here. So technically, Halo gave you some fun phone games. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's so bizarre and crazy to me. Mm-hmm, right? That you go from like Halo Wars or even just the Halo franchise to words with friends. Which is which is Scrabble. You made Scrabble for the phone without encroaching on the copyright name of Scrabble. Mm-hmm. And it blows up. Exactly. Because it was, it was what? Right on that height of like people getting like games in their phone for like internet stuff and that, like smartphones that were able to do that yeah it wasn't like that to- you ever play that toss the paper game yeah yeah it wasn't that it's better <laughs> yeah so then we had windstorm studios dusty monk would start this company as a one-man company in 2012 windstorm closed and he would go to join robot entertainment and finally we have boss fight entertainment so employees of zynga dallas would start boss fight studio after Zanga Dallas was shut down developing mobile games, which is where a lot of these companies have gone over the years. Yeah, it's interesting to see the opening, closing development cycles of some of these studios. Because uh-huh. obviously you had Bonfire, which then was like Zanga Dallas. Yeah. And then they did a 
they worked on some stuff. I don't think they released anything with them when I was reading it. I think Bonfire has since been disbanded because a new Bonfire has showed up. A new Bonfire has shown up, which is another yeah. studio. So so Bonfire went, did that, didn't really produce anything. And then they kind of dispersed. Then anyone who kind of came back together went on to Boss Fight. And Boss Fight, I think, has one game out. I think they did in 2015 hmm. when I was looking it up. It's another mobile game. Okay. So... Just to, to wrap up all the development, I want to throw in some additional trivia that I learned, some kind of interesting stuff. So Sergeant Forge was based off of Bruce Willis. I'm assuming that's going to be any of the Die Hard movies or kind of the, mm-hmm. the height of his career in the 90s as that bald badass. So then also, like Halo's famous quote-unquote 30 seconds of action on repeat, Ensemble wanted to do that for Wars. Instead of a PC game that had 45-minute experience that had its ups and downs, they wanted an intense 15-minute experience. So, you know, kind of that, you know, they wanted to expand upon that 30 seconds of fun for an FPS, but 15 minutes with an RTS. They sped it up, yeah. I mean, like, to get your cycles up and to get your new base and your base upgrades, it was significantly, in my opinion, less time Mm -hmm. than other RTSs, and then also having the base have all your add-ons right there. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to go and build them out. So you could have everything kind of in one spot working for you. Yeah, kind of like, you know, that's why it's an arcade or action mm-hmm. RTS. And then this 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 is kind of funny. So while Ensemble was discussing Sergeant Forge, Bungie would tell them that they put, quote-unquote, Forge in their game as well, but didn't elaborate any further, leaving Ensemble to wonder who this Forge character was. Because Graham Devine was talking to them, and they talked about Forge, like, we have a Forge in ours. And they're like, oh, is it Sergeant Forge? And they're just like, no, you wouldn't get it. And just wouldn't tell, <laughs> wouldn't say any further. So they That's thought the they had the same character, but they absolutely did not. I thought that was absolutely hilarious. I love it, but also terrifying <laughs> if you're trying to develop a game. <laughs> so let's move on to the marketing, one of my favorite sections of all these game episodes. So we had the initial reveal trailer at a Microsoft conference in 2006. Microsoft would reveal the first trailer for Halo Wars, and that's the one where it, I think they had it was Spartan Team Omega. I remember that was seeing that as a kid. I thought that was like one of the most beautiful trailers ever. So then E3 2007, during this, Ensemble would show the first gameplay footage of Halo Wars. But like previous Halo titles, this demo would prove to be a shadow of what the real outcome of the game would be. Kind of again, that's a uh, Halo fashion. So then in E3 2008, we had the five years trailer that would debut. And a lot of people assume that that five long years trailer and even, you know, that quote is kind of reflecting the five years it took to develop Mm -hmm. Halo Wars. So kind of like that foreshadowing. So then we had the demo. The Halo Wars demo was downloaded over two million times in the first five days, making it the most downloaded demo at the time. And by all means, probably those numbers have been gone through the roof. But for the Xbox Live, seeing that, like, a lot of people projected this game to be, like, a hot seller. Yeah, I mean, and you're seeing, like, even if you just had the demo at 2 million, mm-hmm. you get half that. That's great sales for a first week. Mm-hmm. So then, like Halo 3, Ensemble would release Vidox revolving around the game, including development and new feature. Though unlike Halo 3s, there were far less, and they revolved around the end of the project. So that's why I, I, I love seeing Vidox from studios, especially like uh, when Bungie started really capitalizing on it. Mm-hmm. And actually like putting effort and money into it of kind of like yeah. what's going on, here's what we're working on, and, and, and almost creating many documentaries when they're doing it every yeah, time. Yeah, and it was like you saw a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. With Ensemble, I think it was just 
Microsoft throwing these guys in a room. They were probably pissed off because they're getting fired, but they still have to do like all this marketing and PR mm-hmm. for the game itself. So then you also had HaloWars.com. So it's since been shut down, and anytime you try to go to it, it's been, you know, you can read, it gets redirected to Halo Waypoint. Though, you know, if you go in the time machine, you can look at it, and it was basically just a website for Halo Wars. You could find all your stats in there from online games, mm-hmm. anything like that, like Bungie.net. Yeah, yeah, because so they all separated from that and came together again. Mm-hmm. You also had the Spirit of Fire archives. So these are personal... These are personal crew logs from the Spirit of Fire written and released by the game's lead writer, Graham Devine, on his personal website. Though it's admittedly fan fiction, but some aspects remained canon. So if you go to his personal website, which is not GrahamDevine.com, it's some some other website, .GrahamDevine, just look him up. And you can actually read through all of them. And I think they're pretty interesting. I read through all of them for the research for this podcast, so... I'd, I'd say just read it. It's it's fun, and a lot of people accept a lot of it as canon, too. Perfect. So then finally, Doritos. Because, of course, we have to get Doritos. You I'm su- have to. I'm surprised point. Mountain Dew. I, I looked into it. I don't think Mountain Dew was involved with this, unfortunately. But Doritos held a contest where one lucky winner would be featured as a voice actor on Halo Wars, though it was never released who the winner was. So did they actually do it? That's what I'm thinking. God knows how many people <laughs> did or did not enter to be on Halo Wars, but who knows? Or it's like you are on Halo Wars, you're on the disc, it's just hidden and they didn't actually put it in a file. You, you but... were a, you were a scream in the background or that you said two words and they edited it as a grunt yeah. voice or something. You never know. Never know. All right, now moving away from our marketing, uh, we're getting into what's new in the actual game itself mm-hmm. that we haven't yet seen in the Halo universe. Yeah. Uh, for the UNSC, we're seeing the Cobra, which was a Scorpion-Warthog hybrid, the Wolverine, which is a ground vehicle, Rhino, which is a Scorpion variant, the Gremlin, which is another ground vehicle, the Vulture, which is an air vehicle, and the Sparrowhawk. Another air vehicle. Another air vehicle, as they say. Yeah. And for the Covenant, you have the Locust, which is a, a baby scarab, as I might say. It's a small scarab. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Vampire, which is a flying needler. It's basically what it is. It's... It's kind of out of the realm of of what a Covenant vehicle looks like, but I think mm-hmm. it kind of looks like a spirit dropship. It's like a baby spirit dropship that also shoots needles. I just like thinking about a needler that got bit <laughs> <laughs> and, and sprouted wings and is up there. That's, that's my type of vampire. Yeah. Uh, and going over to the Flood, we have the Flood-infected Grunt, the Flood-infected Jackal, the Flood Swarm, which is an infected bird's that's seen early in the campaign. Bomber form. These forms drop flood pods that disperse infector forms. Thrasher form, which is a giant flood combat form. And the flood will also have their own bases and defense systems. So this, if you're thinking about in the Halo universe, is a really big step. Mm-hmm. Where you're actually getting to see grunts and jackals infected, and you're getting just other forms that we don't see again. Wildlife, essentially. Yeah. yeah like something that, you know, we talked about in a previous episode, seeing that kind of stuff. Yeah, you're not seeing that in any, you know, any more of the like first-person shooter aspects of it, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, we're for, we're now seeing, I think for for the first time, I believe, mm-hmm. the insurrectionists in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and this would be the first time we see rebels, which would occupy certain bases in skirmish maps um, that were uh, empty forerunner bases. Yeah, so it was a, a very interesting way to introduce them, and I think. It, 
maybe in Halo Wars 2, I can't confirm or deny, but we could see some insurrection. But really, this is, for the most part, you'll ever see that kind of stuff in the gameplay, mm-hmm. which I think is very interesting that they were allowed to do this kind of stuff because I think, you know, we've talked about in Halo, no two humans can kill each other mm-hmm. in a campaign setting. So I think this kind of, you know, when you're just looking at, like, giant armies going against each other kind of dehumanizes it a little bit. Well, and it's the first time it's ever mentioned outside of a novel. Mm-hmm. So if you're seeing this, you're like, why are we fighting people? Like, what what are insurrectionists? What yeah. is this? So I think it almost drums up more questions and answers if you're not following the lore mm-hmm. within the, the, the other forms of media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's move on to the gameplay itself. So Halo Wars followed the basic rock, paper, scissors rule, meaning a unit is strong against a certain type of unit, but weak against another. Basic gameplay has a player setting up a base, building up the game's form of currency, and purchasing new units or upgrading the base and its defenses. Units and buildings were broken down into light infantry, which would be marines, grunts, jackals, brutes, and elites. Then you had heavy infantry, which was flamethrowers, hunters, and cyclops. Medium armor, which was warthogs, ghosts, choppers, wolverines, and cobras. You had heavy armor, which is scorpions, wraith, elephants, and scarabs. Aircraft, which was hornets, banshees, vultures, vampires, and then building bases and building turrets. Halo Wars would also showcase leaders and their abilities. So depending on the leader, a unique ability would be paired with them. These abilities and leaders are Captain Cutter, who had a Mac Blast, Sergeant Forge, who had Carpet Bomb, you had Professor Anders, who had a cryobomb, and then you had the Prophet of Regret, who had Blessed Immolation, Ancestral Perversion, and Divine Absolution. You had the Arbiter, who had Fiendish Return, Vicious Blades, and Ghastly Vision, and finally a Brute Chieftain, who had Inheritance, Birthright, and Destiny. Cool-ass names. Oh, I, I love those names. I, I love those fucking names. So some additional elements that were added in that were kind of similar to other games we saw, like with Halo 2 and 3, we brought skulls back, um, and they would be available for the player, but they would have to complete a task first before the skull would appear. So you kind of have a quest, almost, mm-hmm. that you'd have to do for it. So instead of having to play like a legendary or find like a crazy broken piece of map, you had to do this quest and, and, and go through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you also have black boxes. Each level has one black box that, when found adds an event to the Halo Wars timeline. This timeline highlights events in the game in the universe, which goes kind of back to the terminals mm-hmm. for it. And then you can obtain those black boxes when you win a skirmish mash with each leader. I hope you guys are excited for our hashtag detailed walkthrough of those bad boys. Oh, yeah. The hashtag, hashtag BB walkthrough. <laughs> so then finally, before we go into the campaign, I want to talk about the cinematics. Any cutscene scene that was not shown in gameplay was developed by Blur Studios. And Blur S- Studios has developed cinematics and trailers for Halo Wars, Halo 2 Anniversary, and Halo Wars 2. Blur has done some of the coolest stuff out there. Mm-hmm. They've done a lot of the stuff for Overwatch. They've done stuff for World of Warcraft. They've done pretty much any beautiful cinematic you've seen. Mm-hmm. They've pretty much had a hand in it. Yeah, and I mean, even just look at what they've done for Halo alone. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, it's it's pretty incredible, you know, producing some amazing things and some amazing cutscenes that kind of have resonated with us for years to come. So now let's go to the campaign. So the first mission is Alpha Base. Forge rallies the troops and retakes Alpha Base. So the game starts with Captain Cutter's report on February 4th, 2531. And it starts with, quote unquote, 
Five years. Five long years. That's how long it took to get Harvest back and develop Halo Wars. That's a subtle, though. You <laughs> usually don't hear that. You have to put on the headphones and like it's really turn it as up. Well. Yeah. You gotta get way yeah, up there. That's a legendary uh, cutscene. So, you know, in, in this, it, it describes how it took five years to get Harvest back, and it shows the cutscene of wins and losses from the UNSC, but, you know, now that it's been taken back, it's basically an absolute wasteland, and then that's when the title card cues with the beautiful music and everything... And so it shows Cutter and his forces outside of Harvest, and they're on the UNSC Spirit of Fire. And it states then, you know, this is 20, 21 years before the Halo event. And we first meet our Serena, or we first meet... First meet our Serena. Oh, (laughs) we got something to say over there. It's my bae. (laughs) So we first meet Serena, the Spirit of Fire's AI, and then we also meet Forge, who is on the surface of Harvest, stating that the Covenant have found, quote-unquote, something in the ice. And then additionally, we meet Anders, a scientist on the board of the Spirit of Fire, and she states that she will be going to the planet and investigate what the Covenant are up to, even though Forge kind of insists that she not. Mm-hmm. So, and just an FYI, We'll, we'll kind of be talking more on the cutscenes than the missions because the missions are, for the most part, are like, what, usually two or three objectives each, and it's just more of like a building up to do these two or three objectives. Yeah, for this, and for, uh, let's say less of Halo Wars 2, um, but more of Halo Wars, it feels like a lot of these are great. Cutscenes are amazing. I, I, I enjoy it, but they're almost like, the tutorial to play multiplayer. Yeah, uh, at least the first mission for sure. And they did try to change up at least what the objectives were and the gameplay were and per, they, and they do. per level. So you got to give them that, and I did appreciate that. So now that we're we're on, you know, we're, we're starting to play the game, the mission starts that Forge is rallying up survivors to take back Alpha Base on Harvest. And after you save as many survivors as possible, you make your way to Alpha Base and take out the shield barrier with grenades. Because this this whole mission was a tutorial, so it's mm-hmm. you know, press Y, throw grenades, kind of showing the player like, hey, you have grenades, fucking use them, nerd. So then <laughs> Cutter, uh, Cutter sends an air support and take out all the enemy vehicles, while Forge and the rest of the Marines take back the remaining Covenant in the Alpha Base. Once the base has been taken back, Cutter orders Forge to scout the surrounding area. And that basically, for the most part, is uh, the first mission. There you go. And so now, of course, some trivia. So the game's tutorial in this mission was specifically meant to tell the player that the game is talking to you, not try to envelop it into the kind of lore of the story of the game. They, uh, I think it was Graham Devine said, you know, when you have tutorials in some game, they try to make it part of, like, the lore or the gameplay yeah. itself. Like, they were straight up like, no. Like, when you play it, it's like, look at the controller in your hands. Human who is not in this universe, mm-hmm. press the sex button. So also, now let's uh, go- Press the what button? What? What did I say? The X? Oh, that sounded a little differently. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so now let's go to everyone's favorite, the hashtag detailed walkthrough. The Look Daddy Skull is unlocked once a player rams 100 grunts with the Warthog. Again, that secondary ability. It can be found near the downed Banshee where the last group of Marines are that you have to save. Mm -hmm. Thank us later. So then the black box for this mission... The hashtag BB walkthrough. Yeah, the hashtag BB walkthrough. The black box for this mission can be found below the arch of the bridge. 
Everyone knows that. Uh, yeah. It, it's you, obvious. You guys know where the bridge it's is. It's the it, bridge. It, it's where you had your first kiss with that girl. Like, you know, you know. It's where you press the X button. <laughs> <laughs> so Alpha Base in this mission was also featured in the Halo Wars demo. So now let's move on to mission number two. Relic Approach. Get Alpha Base up and running and find what the Covenant are up to. And so the cutscene starts with Forge outside of a Forerunner structure, spying on Covenant forces making their way in. And this is the first time that we actually get to see the Arbiter, who is noticeably larger than other elites. He's like a, a head taller than them or something around those lines. Like he's a big boy. And I, and I love when, when you'll have them do stuff like this, that's like showing like different Arbiter. And it's mm-hmm. like, obviously he's above you. Uh, yeah. Like... And, and taking some leeway in it. Mm-hmm. And so we see our big boys and other bigger boys mm-hmm. uh, open the doors and enter. But back on the Spirit of Fire, we see Anders, or Anders, uh, <laughs> made Cutter's observation deck her lab. So she's kind of like gussied it up with all of her sweet science stuff. Yeah, he, like he has to like walk over all the tubes yeah. and, I don't know, Dexter's lab shit that's sitting around. I don't I know. Love it. I love that like stereotypical like science person that's just spread out yeah, over messy, everything. Yeah, messy it's as just fuck. Messy. Yeah. I love it. And so, and so Anders insists on going down to the planet to investigate what the Coven are doing. So it's kind of going back to so be like, just let me down there. I need mm-hmm. to see what's going yeah. on. We need to know what they're doing. But we go back onto Harvest, and the Prophet of Regret orders the Arbiter to destroy the Forerunner structure now that they've obtained an abundance of information from it. Yeah, e- even though that the Arbiter kind of is confused as to why they're doing it, but he's like, they, humans can't get their hands on this. Yeah. And so now we have the mission starts with rebuilding of Alpha Base. And Serena, or Serena Bay, as Jesse may call her, (laughs) gives the player an explanation of what each section does on the base, and the player starts to build their army. So this is kind of the tutorial of, like, this this building does this, this is who you can build there. Mm -hmm. And once you have a small army, they make their way towards the Relic and fight off the Covenant Resistance. So once again, giving you the tutorial feel of here's a pre-built army, that can handle these forces that are out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and in this mission, you'll start to learn strategy, delegating your troops, you know, when and what to upgrade your base with, et cetera. So it's it's the first, I would say the first not hand-holding tutorial stage. Uh-huh, yeah. It's, it's, it's given you an idea on how to move stuff in the last one, and now it's like, here's how you kind of play the game. They're pushing the bird out of the nest and hoping they don't land on their face exactly and you will eventually see a covenant base for the first time uh, and after building that small army up again because you're going to lose some units and you're kind of can't keep going around you find covenant refineries destroy them which also eliminates the covenant air pads you will stumble across multiple shield barriers which block vehicles but not marines who can destroy them with that awesome grenade ability uh-huh and eventually the UNSC makes their way into the forerunner structure with forge and the army you've built up and at that point, Cutter informs Forge that he must destroy the detonator before the Covenant use it to destroy the structure. So once it is destroyed, Anner makes her way to the structure because she gets what she wants because she's a big old baby. <laughs> <laughs> she's just a science gal. Yeah, of course, of course. So, you know, a little bit of a hashtag detailed walkthrough. The Grunt birthday party skull is unlocked after killing 20 jackal snipers. It is located south of Alpha Base. So down in case you guys didn't know. <laughs> yeah, down. And then hashtag BB walkthrough, located just northwest of the Covenant base, blocked off by the anti-air vehicle barrier, is the black box. There you go. Easy money. So now to move on to the third mission, Relic Interior. Forge and Anders are trapped in the Relic. They must be rescued. So the cutscene starts with Forge and Anders approaching the Foreigner Relic in the structure. 
Anders activates the relic, and a hologram appears of the solar system. Nearby elites attack Forge, Anders, and the UNSC forces in the structure. So that's kind of the cutscene with the mission starting with a Spirit of Fire dropping off grizzly tanks at the entrance of the structure. And I think they said this was kind of Forge's pet project or something he had been working on. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's Rhinos. I don't remember. We'll figure out here soon. One of them. They're, they're animals, so one's a pet project. Yeah, exactly. So the grizzlies, you know, you just go through a bunch of Covenant forces. The grizzlies eventually make their way to the pinned down UNSC forces, of course, no matter how long it takes. Forge will tell you, I was on my last round. Where... <laughs> So Forge explains that he, oh yeah, he's made some special upgrades to these grizzly tanks. And so grunts then start to take out the light bridge that you need to go over. So then you have to work your way around the structure so that Anders can get her hands on the bridge to activate it. And then once you, you know, once she repairs the controls, they make their way over the bridge. Anders and Forge then make a narrow escape from an army of hunters as a spirit of fire extracts them from the planet which is actually kind of scary to think about an yeah. army of army of uh, hunters but then cutter tells anders that she must debrief him on all of her findings the moment she gets back on the ship so now let's go on to hashtag detailed walkthrough for this mission the cowbell skull is unlocked after killing 45 hunters it will appear in front of the relic console that Anders must repair. Mm-hmm. So then hashtag BB walkthrough. The black box is located outside of the Forerunner structure by the downed pelican. And there you so, go. So in case you guys didn't know, now you know. And that's the words of some famous rapper. I think Biggie Smalls, I can't remember. And after you've really soaked in those, those really hashtag detailed walkthroughs you need, mm-hmm. uh, we pop over to Arcadia City. The Covenant invasion of Arcadia is in full swing. Evacuation of its civilian population is UNSC's top priority. Mm -hmm. So back on the Spirit of Fire, Anders explains that the relic pointed to the Arcadia colony. Anders insists that they make their way to Arcadia, though Cutter says that it may be against their mission that they'll, they'll go. Yeah, they'll, they'll make their way there. Like I think they kind of understand like what that relic means and, and trying to figure out these Covenant forces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Spirit of Fire arrives at Arcadia and finds a Covenant invasion taking place. Serena, uh, Jesse's Bay, <laughs> says that there's... I'm going to do that the whole thing now. Serena says that there's activity on the surface of the planet. Cutter then watches a video feed of Spartans fighting off the Covenant invasion. Which is a cool cutscene, by the way. I love seeing watching this like downed camera, and you see Spartans shooting Covenant, and walking over it. It's badass. Fucking love it. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And so then, so after you see some some badassery, the mission starts with Forge helping fight off the Covenant and eight civilians making their way off the planet. There are three cargo ships Forge must defend and fill with as many civilians as possible. Kind and, of like escort missions, essentially, but with <laughs> hundreds of civilians. Yeah. So you basically just have to like. You know, single file them up, get them in there. Perfect. No, uh, bring them in, save as many as you can, obviously. The more you do, better you do. And this is the first time that we have the Spartans joining in the UNSC in the fight. Yeah, it's pretty badass. Yep. And uh, during the battle, one of the cargo ships is shut down while trying to flee. So, serves them right. Hey, that's what happens. And (laughs) afterwards, a UNSC base is established on the surface. surface. And after saving as many civilians as possible, even though one of your cargo ships got shot down. Both cargo ships flee. Yeah. Forge and the remaining UNSC forces flee the city. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, so as, as they're fleeing, they're, they're fleeing out, they think in their mind, where's the skull? Exactly. 
So, hashtag detailed walkthrough. The Wovwu, <laughs> the Wovwu skull, is unlocked after killing 50 elites and located on top of the staircase by Eastern Base. Uh, that's right. Yeah, in case you guys didn't know. Yeah. And then uh, the hashtag BB walkthrough, uh, the black box is north of the west base by a column. So but go west, find the base, go north, find the column, hashtag BB walkthrough. Exactly. Uh, and then final piece of trivia for you. The Pillar of Autumn is at Arcadia during this mission, but was badly damaged. Sucks to suck. Boom. <laughs> so yeah, now we have Arcadia outskirts. The civilian evacuation is complete. UNSC forces must safely withdraw from the city. So forces and USC forces must hold a position and wait until the Spirit of Fire can help. They make their way to a crater and create a base to brace themselves for the oncoming Covenant attacks. During this, more UNSC units retreat to the base in the crater. Serena informs Sergeant Forge that uh, that the Covenant are building a large mega turret and they must take it out. So that's, you know, part of the mission. You go and you take it out. Afterwards, you can just establish another base there. So it kind of works out for everyone except oh. for the Covenant. The UNSC forces are eventually joined by Spartan Team Omega, a group of six heavily armed Spartans. So I remember when I first started playing this and I had saw the the initial trailer when it's like this Spartan group Omega. Mm -hmm. And then you see Red Team. You're like, well, where the fuck are these other guys? Yeah. But these guys actually do show up and they have like those really cliche Spartan voices, you know, I love it. I fucking love it. The sweet gruff war voice. Mm -hmm, exactly. So the UNSC then make their way to a covenant base located near theirs and take it out. Once these bases are destroyed, Omega's like, see ya, and leaves. And then Cutter instructs Forge to come to the bridge of the spirit of fire. So that's the mission. It's pretty straightforward. We saw, I think you had nine Spartans total in that mission because I believe. Red Team are still with it. Mm -hmm. You know, Omega shows up, fucks everything up, and leaves. And I think at this point in the lore, too, Spartans were known about, I think, right around the time. So they could definitely just show up with no explanation and leave. But yeah, so moving on to your hashtag detailed walkthrough. The Fog Skull can be found after destroying five Wraith tanks located at the Northwest Two-Way Glass Road. So, I mean, pretty futuristic right mm -hmm. there. Then also your hashtag BB walkthrough. The black box is by some ferns in between the Covenant and UNSC base. Arcadia ferns are pretty unique. Yeah, just, got, just, just check them out. You'll find it. You know that uh, that book uh, where the red fern grows? No yeah. correlation. Oh, the, 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 who would have thought? <laughs> so then, yeah. So now we have the next mission, Dome of Light. Uncover what the Covenant were after on Arcadia. I actually kind of like this one. It's pretty fun. So back on the Spirit of Fire... Forge, Cutter, and Anders see that the Covenant have deployed a large energy shield on the planet. Anders says that, that there are some plasma-based rhinos, rhino tanks, that can be sent down and they can take out the shield. Anders and Forge then make their way back on the planet. Anders is held up in this radio tower, I think it is. Mm -hmm. She's in a tower. And the first rhino tank attacks the shield, but it's immediately destroyed. So I, I always love kind of watching that. I thought it was hilarious because they're just like, well, shit. <laughs> so then the UNSC must establish a base and then fighting off any of the invading Covenant trying to take them out. Anders explains that multiple rhino, rhinos must fire at the shield all at once to, to break it down. So as each rhino arrives, it must be taken to a certain position, all kind of this circular ring or mm -hmm. like kind of half circle surrounding that shield. Yeah. Anders marks, you know, the second point to place the rhino. 
and it's a Covenant outpost. So oh, who would have thought in this game that's like, oh no, we have to do more mission things. <laughs> oh no, that's where a Covenant. Oh no, that's uh, another Covenant base. Yeah. Who knew? Who would have thought? But we could also make a base there once we destroy it. <laughs> How fucking awesome! So once it's taken out, the second Rhino is placed. Both Rhinos fire at it with minimal results, but they do say, oh, we're making some progress. So then a third Rhino is placed at its position, and all three fire at the shield. As they fire, locusts appear to fuck everything up and attack the UNSC. But eventually, it is established that they need five whole Rhino tanks to take down the shield. So the Spirit of Fire, you know, once they do that, the Spirit of Fire then uses the Mac Blast and takes out the Covenant base inside of the shield. Once that's all complete, the UNSC then make their way into the shield. So now, once again, hashtag detailed walkthrough. The sickness skull can be attained after killing 50 banshees appearing behind the hangar at your base. Right under your nose, pretty straightforward. Yeah, just saw it the first place. Yeah, exactly. So then, hashtag BB walkthrough. The black box can be found in the western area on a small off-the-beaten-path. Wait until you've placed the third rhino. Wait till you get the third one, then you'll know. Then you'll know. So after you've placed that third rhino, found your BB, destroyed a shield, got inside. Now it's time for Scarab. Scarab. Send in ground units to destroy a Covenant super weapon. The cutscene starts with the Prophet of Regret and the Arbiter walking down a bridge. Oh, it might be the bridge. <laughs> the Arbiter's displeased with his missions of finding Forerunner artifacts. And the Prophet of Regret explains that the world they are on holds an army of Forerunner relics that they can use to take out humanity. The Prophet of Regret then orders the Arbiter to capture Anders, since she has some knowledge of Forerunner technology. Yeah, because I think he shows he tries to, like, use the compad to activate all these Forerunner ships and, like, nothing happens. Mm -hmm. So he's like, get get her. Get that girl. She's smart. <laughs> She's got beakers. Back on Arcadia, as two Rhino tanks make their way inside the shield, a half-constructed scarab takes them out. And the UNSC must then build an army and make their way around the scarab while dodging its field of vision. The UNSC must take up power nodes, making the scarab head move much slower. So you can obviously, like, make your way around, get mm -hmm. these objectives done, mm -hmm. slowing it down. Yeah, it's kind of how, like, this beam of, like, this, it's almost like a, a laser pointer that you see, like, moving back and yeah, forth. Like and the, you have to work around that. Yeah, it's a pretty neat concept for it, like, mm -hmm. for, like, working within, like, an FOV of an, like, Almost making it like a uh, sneaking game now. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty fun. So as this is happening, the UNSC also must fight off the occasional wave of Covenant oppression, fighting their bases, fighting random squads, things like that. The mm -hmm. Scarab starts to fire at the structures that are hiding the UNSC base. It's finally pissed off and like, okay, okay, I'm just going to just you kill my hit, a, hit you it kill my batteries. This is what's happening. Mm -hmm. Then they use this to their technical advantage and attack the Scarab as it fires at the base. With this method, the scarab is eventually taken out. Granted, it's half a scarab, so I give you half a victory. <laughs> you know how it is. You get a C. Yeah, exactly. Perfect C for it. So for your hashtag detailed walkthrough, the Rebel Sympathizer Skull can be found on the peninsula in the middle of the map after you destroy every power node. Pretty simple. And the hashtag BB walkthrough, the black box can be found at the farthest east point of the map, surrounded by shiny blue supplies. Pretty straightforward. The good old, you find that shiny blue supplies? It's there. So then now we have Anders' signal. Forge and recon groups Echo and India start the search for Anders. So the mission starts, or the cutscene with Forge and Anders 
investigating the scene of the destroyed scarab, and then the Arbiter appears. Forge attacks him, but is quickly taken out. Right as the Arbiter goes to deliver the killing blow, Anders stops the Arbiter and says, you know, I'll, I'll come with you, just let him live. So he just takes her, they shoot up to a spirit dropship, and they're out. And I love, right at the last second, Red Team appears, just like shooting everywhere, and just like, what happened? Yep. <laughs> so the Spartans and Forge return to the Spirit of Fire. Anders can only be tracked for a short amount of time, and while Forge suggests they follow her, Spartan Jerome suggests, who is the leader of Red Team, suggests that they just take the ship out. So Cutter then makes the call to follow her wherever the the Covenant transport is taking her. They appear on an unknown planet. The UNSC then make their way to the planet with some elephant bases in which they must train units out of. They then see, we, or this is the first time we also see Brutes too, just kind of chilling off in the distance. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that they note that it's kind of like, they're kind of working with the lore here because they're like, Serena, like, what is that? Like, I thought you said there's no enemies. And Serena even says, like, those are the Jerohani known as Brutes, and they were responsible for the initial invasion on Harvest. Mm. So I think that's where Graham Devine's like, I got to use something about Harvest. There you go. Well, yeah, I mean, especially if you're, like, trying to base it before CE mm-hmm. of, like, what else happened? Like, yeah. what else have we built in the lore so far? Well, I think it was still that attention to detail that we can definitely appreciate, yeah. I think. And it's, it's a good introduction for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then Red Team then flanks the Brutes and makes their way back to Forge. So while Forge and the Spartans establish a small army, Team Echo is then taking offline. Like, you see they're attacked by, quote-unquote, like, something. Like, they mm-hmm. appear out in the distance, and then the screen goes like or that area kind of goes into shadow mode if you haven't played an rts <laughs> shadow mode i don't know what to call goes it man. fog of war <laughs> so yeah so cutter instructs forge to send a team out to investigate then the india team is attacked as well and goes offline forge and the unsc then come face to face with the flood for the first time still love the fact that the flood are in this and it's kind of obvious that they're on some kind of forerunner world that like uh, Delta Halo, I believe, mm-hmm. was kind of just neglected. Yeah. And it shows that the Flood have taken over. So the Flood uh, then eventually capture one of the elephants. So they proceed to fight off the Flood. And you also see at this point Flood towers that can shoot Flood spores. It's really interesting for the 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 lore of the Flood, like how much they did for this. Yeah, it's, it's probably the most you've seen built up thus far mm-hmm. out of anything. Yeah. So the flood are defeated and the captured elephant is taken back and then eventually a proper base is established on the planet. Serena then explains that the species are unknown but are some kind of virus or parasite and at that point everyone kind of gets a little freaked out. Mm-hmm. But the UNSC then must fend off hordes of oncoming flood while investigating the surrounding area. The other elephant is then rescued from the flood and Cutter instructs the elephants, and everyone else returned to the base. Once everyone has returned to the base, Serena says that she will start working on tracking Anders' signal, which it's a little confusing a second because she says she kind of can and kind of can't, Mm -hmm. and the next mission starts off a little funky, but we'll go to that in a second. So the Rebel Supporter Skull, with your hashtag detail walkthrough, can be obtained after killing... 750 infector forms but take in mind that like one unit is like let's say like 10 or 15 like it's not as much as you think it equates to kind of everyone else you've killed uh yeah so located you know the the skull is then located at the northern tip 
of the map. There you go. And then the hashtag BB walkthrough, the black box can be found south of your base over a tree-covered plateau. There you go. Easy as that. And now we continue to the flood. Find Anders and rescue her before it's too late. Red team makes their way towards Anders' signal in a warthog, but it crashes after fighting off the flood. And that's what I said, like, they never explained that they found the signal. Like, they're just like, we've got Anders' signal, even though, like, five seconds ago... Serena's like, I don't know about her I don't signal. know if we'll ever find it. We found it. <laughs> we found it right away. <laughs> and then Red Team must hold their position in flood-infected territory, and Forge must rescue them. Mm-hmm. So the UNSC learned the flood are a colony, and that herding smaller stalks and bases, quote-unquote, will weaken the large flood form nearby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like the main base. Like, you you learn that there's, like, one main giant sack of flood. <laughs> Big old sack of flood. Yeah, it's very similar to like with the scarab. You're knocking out different little portions of it mm-hmm, that weaken it. Mm-hmm. And so as Forge and the Spartans take out smaller flood stalks, the bigger one is getting even weaker. Serena explains the big one can eventually regenerate, though, so the UNSC must pick up the pace in clearing out the flood. Mm-hmm. Serena also says that she's lost Ender's signal. You know, again, <laughs> why not? And that the flood might be jamming it. Eventually, Forge and the UNSC forces make their way to the Spartans, and they band together to face the threat of the Flood. Everyone makes their way to what we now know as the Flood hive mind and take it out. Once it was destroyed, Ander's signal is found again. It's just like a hide-and-go-seek thing. <laughs> Does she even want to be found? Ooh, we'll see. Uh, and so, that's it. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty, pretty cut-and-dry Mm-hmm. Mission for it. And for your hashtag detailed walkthrough, the rebel leader skull can be found next to the crash pelican by the base and can be obtained after killing 20 flood stalks. And then the BB, hashtag BB walkthrough, the black box is located on the west side of the map near a flood structure. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, uh, if, it's if right you, there for you. If you guys can't find these after listening to this episode, you're just a bunch of fools. Listen, all you have to go west. As, as they say in that song, go west. Go west. What song? Go west. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So then we have Shield World. Spirit of Fire is being drawn against her will into the belly of a hostile planet. Ground forces deployed to the planet's surface will be abandoned if the Spirit of Fire doesn't act quickly. So Anders is being held. You know, the the mission starts. Anders is being held in a force field in the Arbiter and the Prophet of Regret Observer. Kind of poking fun out of her. Like, look at this little idiot. So then, you know, it, that that's really all of it. it. Just kind of shows like, hmm, it's interesting that she's so fragile, but yet this is the one that the forerunners trust. Mm-hmm. But then it moves on to the Spirit of Fire is making its way towards Anders, and the Arbiter instructs all the other elites to get the Prophet of Regret back to High Charity while they go and they take out the UNSC. So the Spirit of Fire appears over an ocean, and they're confused because they see no Covenant. The ocean floor then opens up and foreigner sentinels come out and they start scanning the ship. So then, you know, this is this is while that's going on. So back on the ground, there are still UNSC forces fighting the flood and the spirit of fire needs to evacuate them before they go into the planet's surface. Mm-hmm. So the UNSC also must clear all the flood infested areas for evac of the Marines on the planet's surface. There's also these pylons that they have to take out, kind of a little side mission. So once you eventually take those out, the evacuations start to happen. Uh, as a pelican is leaving, though, it is attacked by an aerial flood form and must be recovered. And there, you know, we learn that there was a Spartan on board. So eventually the Spartan on board is revived and all ground forces are accounted for and they make their way 
off the planet's surface through through uh, pelican transports. Mm-hmm. So then now let's move on to the trivia. More importantly, hashtag detailed walkthrough. The catch skull can be obtained after killing 350 swarms and is located on the southeastern part of the map by one of the tractor beams. Straightforward. There you go. Now, hashtag BB walkthrough. The black box is located after rescuing Team Bravo. They will be blocking the path to the black box. So just get them out of the way with. Get them out of the way. Box uh, is there. Boom. So if you don't want the black box, don't rescue them. Maybe you have to in the game. I can't remember. But if you, if you don't want it, you don't want to rescue them, don't just worry just about it. look at it. But yeah, but if you if want, you want the, it, look at it. You got to help your fellow man. Exactly. And woman. So. Got to help them all. So continuing on, we go to cleansing. Cleanse the infection forms from Spirit's hull before they penetrate the interior. <laughs> I'm just going to do these dramatic voices now. <laughs> the Spirit of Fire makes its way inside the planet, and that is when the Flood attack the Spirit of Fire. Troops make their way on the surface of the ship and defend its airlocks. So, so this, that... is, this is like unique because now it's on the surface. of It's on top of the Spirit of Fire. Yeah. We're no longer on the ground. Like you see it's moving its way through the planet. And in the background, you can see like it's in this long hallway almost. It is pretty cool. It's it's one of those missions that's it's much different than what we've seen. Mm-hmm. And it's different than we've seen in a lot of other games. Mm-hmm. So it changes it up. It is a shorter one for you. Yeah. But it's fun. I enjoy it. And so, as you're defending the airlocks, the flood spread on the ship, but Forerunner Sentinels arrive to help fight the flood or finish the fight as well. <laughs> Serena then instructs Forge to get everyone into the airlocks. The Spirit of Fire starts to make its way through an energy ring, and it starts to destroy the flood on the hull of the ship. Mm-hmm. It will only remove the flood if they are already damaged, though. So, you put a little couple pop shots in them. So, gone. it's kind of a worthless thing. Yeah. It's like if you left... Or if you're like, a, you happen to be in a skirmish while it happens. Yeah. Uh, the Sentinels start to attack the UNSC forces after it's like, hey, that other stuff's gone. Now you're gone. We got gotcha. you. Mm-hmm. And eventually the flood on the ship is cleared out and Cutter gives Forge command of two vultures. Mm-hmm. And a little bit about that, uh, a little bit about that hashtag detailed walkthrough. You have the most delicious skull, the sugar cookie skull, which can be obtained after destroying 100 Sentinels. You can locate it in front of a window at the front of the ship. Easy enough. Easy money. And that hashtag BB walkthrough, the black box can be found at the west of the center hull using hornets to retrieve it. Also easy enough. There you go. So then we have repairs. Repair Spirit of Fire and drive Covenant Forces back. So now we're still on the the top of the Spirit of Fire. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of like reusing that asset for this next mission. So again, kind of a, not a shorter one, but very few objectives that you just kind of build up through in case you guys haven't caught on yet. That is a lot of the game. So the Spirit of Fire makes their way out of the tunnel that was inside of the planet or now on the inside of an open plane of the planet. So they're like in a in a world inside of the planet. Mm-hmm. Kind of like what kind of they talked about the Ghost of Onyx, but no like you don't have to transport to get there. It's just there. Like yeah. it even has a sun inside of it, they they mentioned. So as this happens, a covenant carrier shows up and they clash against it. So now we're on the back of the you know, we're on the the surface of the ship again. And Forge must use Cyclops to repair the power core while Forge fends off the oncoming Covenant attack. So the Cyclops are kind of like reminiscent of like those prototype suits that they like. Let's say they're the prototype suits that they used for Spartan armor. Mm -hmm. I think they might be in lore. Don't quote me on that. But yeah, so they're just giant, just mech suits, essentially. So 
After fending off the Covenant, Serena suggests upgrading the cannons on the ship to fight off both air and ground units. Eventually, you know, it's it's literally just you're you're fighting off Covenant while the Cyclops repair this power core, and eventually it is repaired and the Spirit of Fire leaves the fight. So it really is it's just like a percentage counter going mm-hmm. on, and that's really all it is. You're just defending these Cyclops and making sure that nothing really happens. It's 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 not an exciting mission. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a mini escort mission. It's like you're waiting yeah. for stuff to fill up. You got to defend them. So it's kind of like a waiting game, mm-hmm. but it makes it different though. Like that's kind of nice that you're not just rinse and repeating every level, having the same objective going on and on and on. Mm-hmm. It yeah. makes it pretty unique. Yeah. So then we have hashtag detailed walkthrough. The boomstick skull can be obtained after killing 12 troop transports, and it can be found on the main structure on the front of the ship. Hashtag BB walkthrough. The black box is also located on the hole to the west. There you go. There you go. So now then we have the next mission, Beachhead. Protect Anders and escort her to the LZ. So we see that she is, you know, the, the cutscene starts. She is released from her prison. And the Arbiter drags her to some sort of Forerunner keypad. He then forces her to activate the Forerunner ships. So as the elites and the Arbiter all watch in amazement, they she escapes through the teleport the teleporter onto the surface. I think she just gets on it and screams surface as kind of this whim, and it yeah. happens. And she's like, sweet, until she sees a flood infector pod that makes its way towards her. But Forge shows up at the last second and takes them out. Got to be dramatic. Exactly. Anders informs Forge that the Flood are assembling a huge fleet. How she knows that, I don't fucking know, but she knows it. (laughs) So the Flood then take out a pelican that were getting ready to pick up Anders and Forge, and they make their way towards the pelican. Yeah, and there's at, at this point, we're also kind of meeting up with other UNSC forces, and Anders says, you know, oh, there's this, uh, there's this, there's this teleporter. Let's go to it. So. Once they're in the teleporter, Forge, Anders, and the remaining Marines are teleported away from the Flood. And as they wait for Evac, Anders says that she thinks that she can stop the Covenant, but she needs to get to her lab. So once Evac arrives, Anders says that Forge needs to stay on the surface and they need to lock down the area. At this point, Red Team joins the fight. So the UNSC forces then make their way to a Covenant base, and after destroying it, we finally get to make another base because mm-hmm. it's not a mission without a base. It's true. Other than the ones on Spirit of Fire and the first <laughs> mission. Disregard what I just said. So then, once a base is established, the UNSC make their way around the area and defeat any Covenant forces still on the ground. More bases are taken out and converted to UNSC bases. The Covenant abandoned a scarab at one point, but it's quickly taken by the Flood. So once the flood are destroyed, a Spartan then gains command of the abandoned scarab, which uh, this is one of those few times it contradicts the lore because scarabs are made by Mechalics or uh, Mechalic Golos or I, I can't remember the proper term. But so this is one of those few times that it was kind of you could see where the communication with Bungie and Ensemble wasn't always there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I digress. So then the Covenant are all cleared from the surrounding area and Forge must stand by for the mission briefing. Something we forgot to mention is that Spartans have the ability to take over vehicles. Yeah, like so, kind of so that thing from the, the action RTS mm-hmm, idea of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I always loved that. 
So moving on to hashtag detailed walkthrough, the paint train skull is located after killing 10 flood bomber forms and is located north of the first teleporter. The black box is located on the northeastern edge of the map in the middle of the edge. The old middle of the edge. <laughs> the middle of the edge, which sounds like a really cool song. Exactly. You know, that's a great song. Reactor, which is our next <laughs> mission. Pull the reactor core to the apex site. Anders plans on using the FTL core reacting from the Spirit of Fire to destroy the shield world by overloading it, causing a chain reaction in the sun that's in the center of the planet. Serena expresses her concern about not being able to get home if they destroy the reactor, but Cutter explains that's humanity's best chance at survival. So it's kind of going back and to cold protocol of like, can't let anything get back home, mm-hmm. can't let any of that stuff happen. Like, we got to take out what we can to preserve mm-hmm. the rest of humanity. Yes. And so Forge and his forces are in charge of delivering that FTL core. The Covenant then attack the Pelicans carrying the core, and it's dropped. Cutter then changes the plan of action, and it's now a ground operation. A base is constructed, there you go, and the core now <laughs> must be moved using elephants. As the UNSC fights off the Covenant in the surrounding area, they also must fight off the Flood. So you're kind of getting a mixture of both force at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, really bringing that combat together and having you kind of shift how you run your military. Yeah. Eventually, the FTL Corps is attached to the Elephant, and they make their way towards the bombing zone. After fighting off any Covenant resistance that's left, the Corps makes its way to the bombing zone, and engineers start to rig it to blow. Yeah, so one interesting thing is that for this mission, you were always going uphill. So if at any point, like, the elephant that was carrying it was destroyed, it would roll back down the hill, and you would have to just restart it. But there was, like, multiple hills. Like, you'd go up this one hill, flat section, hill, flat section. Kind of, like, like checkpoints. Yeah, essentially. And going to our hashtag detailed walkthrough. Your favorite part of these episodes. Greatest part. The Bountiful Harvest Skull is unlocked after destroying 20 vampires, a.k.a. flying needlers, (laughs) bitten by vampires, and located north of the Second Covenant base. You know which one that is. Exactly. The hashtag BB walkthrough. Black box can be found hidden southwest of the First Covenant base behind a wall, so only an air unit can retrieve it. Yeah, that's the Covenant base with that uh, 7-Eleven and Chick-fil-A, in case you're unsure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got that wall between it uh, where they are. It's really nice. (laughs) So yeah, let's move on to the final mission of the campaign, Escape. Help the Spirit of Fire's crew escape the S.H.I.E.L.D. world. So as the engineers, we're at this this, this uh, cutscene, and it is one of the coolest cutscenes on Earth. I know plenty of people who have never played Halo Wars, but speak very uh, highly of this cutscene that we're about to describe. So as the engineers start to work on the FTL core, he is killed by the Arbiter, and a force of elites make their way towards Forge and Spartan Red Team. Forge instructs the Spartans to take care of the elites, while Forge goes one-on-one with the Arbiter, which, fuck, that's cool. It's ballsy. That's ball- I was going to say that's ballsy. Mm-hmm. So we see this awesome, awesome cutscene of Red Team just easily taking out the elites, and then we see Forge and the Arbiter fight, though it's a one-sided fight, and Forge is just getting his ass handed to him, but he's kind of pushing back a little bit, but overall, he's getting his ass kicked. So while the Arbiter is boasting about how it would be so easy to kill Forge, Forge actually kills the Arbiter while he's boasting. He takes his knife and lunges it into his throat, and then, just to kick him while he's down, uses his own sword to finish the kill. Mm Mm-hmm. Amazing, incredible. So at that point, 
we learn that the FTL core must be detonated manually. And though the leader of Red Team, Jerome, volunteers to do so, Forge insists that he goes on and that Forge will stay behind, saying that they need every Spartan that they can for this war. Not mm-hmm. even for this battle, for this war. So, Well, yeah, because we, we, we saw earlier that they're saying, like, you know, we, we have to do what we can. If we have to blow ourselves up and can't make it home, so be it. We're doing this for humanity, not just for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then the mission kind of starts, and Serena explains that the exit passage has been sealed off. And the UNSC must open these six kind of shield doors, but they're on the ground, mm-hmm. for, for them to kind of get in and get out. So if any or any Covenant are near the doors when they try to open it, it will remain shut because it only reacts to humanity. So a base is established, of course, in mm-hmm. case you didn't know, in order to fight off the oncoming Covenant army. And a 30-minute timer begins for the detonation of the core. So the six shield barriers must be turned off in a certain order or else, you know, shit out of luck and y'all are going to die on the planet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and of course, the Flood join the fight and add a new barrier that the UNSC must get through before escaping the planet. For and, and Forge, you can hear him narrating in the background, like through the comms. Forge eventually makes his way to the sun and gives the UNSC then a 10-minute countdown before he detonates the core. The UNSC then finds himself confronting a large flood outbreak. So it's kind of less about the Covenant at this point and more about kind of like the theme of every Halo game, fighting off that oncoming flood. Mm-hmm. So eventually the UNSC does open all of the shield doors and escape forge then detonating the core back on the spirit of fire the gravity of the sun won't let the ship escape so cutter devises a plan to use the gravity of the ship to slingshot around it and escape the planet once and for all so you know they 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 get out of there with a blaze of glory as the whole planet does this giant explosion uh star wars a new hope Death Star explosion. Mm-hmm. They probably just copy and pasted that that yeah. cutscene. <laughs> yeah, in that's there. exactly what they did. That's how that works, by the way. Oh yeah, for any future developers. So yeah, to, you know, it then shows on the UNSC Spirit of Fire. Two weeks later, a majority of the crew are going into cryo sleep. Cutter then closes Forge cryo chamber, and then the game ends. So now let's move on to some trivia and detailed walkthroughs. So hashtag detail walkthrough. The Emperor Skull can be unlocked when you kill three scarabs, and the skull will appear behind the main spawn flood point. Hashtag BB walkthrough. The black box is located north of the original UNSC base by the blue ring. Mm-hmm. So then also, once you beat the campaign on Legendary, the Legendary ending is unlocked on every difficulty, which the only other game I can think of that does that, even though it's not the only game, is uh, Tony Hawk's Underground. <laughs> yeah, just an FYI. <laughs> there you go. So, in case you were wanting to link those two games, now you can bring this up at the next party. Perfect. Like, you want to know what two games you wouldn't expect to be very similar? <laughs> hey, I, 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 you know what? I didn't know. Now we know. <laughs> so, the Forerunner symbols on the shield doors are from the Halo 3 ARG Iris campaign. It's kind of reusing some of those interesting assets. Mm-hmm. So, it was, it was cool for Ensemble to kind of work in those elements even from halo 3's marketing probably last minute decision that i think is really cool yeah so then finally let's move on to the legendary ending once the credits finally disappear from the screen the screen will remain black and you can hear serena say quote captain wake up something has happened so leaving this open to a sequel which leaving up to a sequel for a studio they just fired (laughs) 
<laughs> no, but it, it makes sense because obviously they're wanting commercial success from it. They've put five plus years of money mm-hmm. and effort into it. So why not keep it open? Why because not? Here's the thing. If you don't make a second one, okay. Mm-hmm. Like at least keep fans wanting it. So it makes sense. Yeah. So now let's move on to cut content and material concepts, all of that jazz. So one thing you wouldn't expect is battle rifles. Mm-hmm. So in the the original trailer that was released in 2006, the Spartans had BRs, which was at you know the time not canon. You know we talked about how when Harvest came out, they had a BRs in there and they were they were prototype prototype weapons. So there was still going on with like some lore that was kind of being like oddly switched around that maybe not even. Graham Devine knew at the time it was the lead writer. It was all kind of a, a mess when it came to little details like that that fans were pointing out because that was what, like, they took those out because fans were upset about it, which was kind of interesting that Bungie maybe was like, don't listen to those nerds. Listen yeah. to us. We put, fuck it, we, we retconned those BRs. We don't care. <laughs> you can do it too. <laughs> and it's tough too because, I mean, I guess, like, at this stage, do you say, like, okay, the prototypes are being shipped out even more? So, I mean... I don't know. I, I think it's more prototypes. <laughs> I think it's everyone. smart to just be like, all right, fine. We'll just go with what we have. <laughs> so yeah, and then also originally, like kind of the the age games, you were supposed to build a base wherever you wanted to in this game. Mm-hmm. Though this this version that they had was released to the Microsoft Game Studios, and feedback showed it was widely unbalanced for whatever reason. Yeah, because and I think they just limited those bases because yeah, with any of the ages stuff you'll have like campments that you can find anywhere mm-hmm. I think this limited limited it a lot more mm-hmm. yeah so another thing that was cut was f- playable flood units so this never made it past the concept stage in following the the rock paper scissor rule the flood would you know resemble more of Starcraft's Zerg and even though that's Zerg. where they were Starcraft's Zerg well if you get that wrong you're gonna you're gonna fucking hear that from everybody that's the most popular unit in all of the fucking world that's fine. I've never played those games. But so they wanted the, you know, the flood is this overwhelming force. And if you make them playable, then it has to play with that rock, scissor, paper rule. And it kind of defeats the purpose of the flood, you know, like because all of a sudden it kind of downs them more to this e- like easily defeatable thing. So they said, you know what? No. Yeah, because it's tough because if they're like Zerg, you do like a Zerg rush, which is where you basically make a lot of cheap units very quickly and just mm-hmm. rush them in and just kind of. When you flood them. So, I mean, they could have done something like it, but you basically just be playing StarCraft. Yeah, and that's what they said is it was too much like StarCraft and it defeats the purpose of the flood, which, you know, it, it would, it, basically they said it would be wildly unbalanced if you were uh, someone playing the flood because you mm-hmm. would probably win every time. So then we also had a Covenant campaign, again, something they wanted to do like they did in Halo 2, but they did not have the time or the manpower to do no. that. So then we also had a Gorgon, which was a Covenant ground vehicle, which was kind of like a walking needler. Man, it's great. <laughs> That's all I want in my life now. So then we also had a Wolverine, which was a ground vehicle, a Cougar, which is a ground vehicle, Fox Cannon, which was a ground vehicle, a Hydra, which was an air vehicle, Falcon, which was an air vehicle, a Chimera, which kind of looked like smaller Halo 2 Scarab. You had the Leviathan mobile base. And then you also had this fatality system where the Spartan or Covenant leaders could inflict heavy damage on units, which they scrapped. Another thing that was cut was the Halo 2 Scarab model, because in that original demo in 07... That basket. Yeah, they had the basket, which, you know, 
Bungie wasn't letting them know what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So they were using that old model. And I think eventually some conversation came up like, hey, we're not doing that anymore. Yeah. And there's like, oh, fuck. (laughs) You also had uh, something that was cut, which I wish they would have done, was recruitable heretic units. So you could have taken those heretics like from Halo 2, Mm -hmm. been like, hey, fight with the UNSC against the Covenant. That would have been so cool. It would have been really cool because, like, then you could have even had, like, the Covenant go with the Insurrectionists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's very similar to what we saw, like, with... Uh, Cold oh. Protocol? Yes, exactly. I mean, it's exactly what, what we would have seen. Yeah. But on the opposite side. And then finally, Ensemble wanted ambient wildlife in Halo Wars in the background and going on, but we really didn't get that. So things they wanted were, like, the Space Owl and Oxyadnea or something, which was a mammal-slash-large cat. Mm-hmm. You also had an Arctic Ice Hound. You had an eel, which was a giant snake creature. And then you had a Harvest Whale. I want that whale. You want the Harvest Whale? There's a little bit, a little bit of Franck <laughs> action going on right there. So now let's move on to achievements. So in this game, there are a total of 58 achievements adding up to 1,200 gamer score. And we get these broken down, similar to how we have in the other ones, mm-hmm. with campaign missions. We have a couple co-op in this. Uh, skirmish, multiplayer, and then some other DLC and some other fun random ones that I always love that they put in there for it. Yeah, like mis- miscellaneous, and then even some secret ones. Yeah, and so to start off with this campaign missions, similar to like every other Halo game, uh, you go ahead and for beating the entire game, you can beat on Heroic or Legendary. Uh, you get the achievements for those. Um, if you earn one gold medal, which is pretty much finding everything that you need, doing record time, things like that, you get one. If you get them all, boom. And then there's plenty more that go into almost tie in at times to kind of your skulls. Yeah, like like I think at one point it was at mission four, save Adam. I never did that. I don't know who the fuck Adam is, but I never saved him, so I never got that achievement. That's a shame. Yeah, but always like kind of random things like mission six, protect every rhino. Yeah, so it, it gives you along with that kind of skull achievement mm-hmm. for it, it gives you a, a whole nother it gives it more replayability too it's, yeah. for these achievements. Because it's it's not every mission has kind of its own unique thing you need to do. Like a uh, mission seven, don't destroy any power nodes. Like who is high enough to try that? Yeah. Like that's crazy. But again, cool. They tried to make this game as replayable as possible. But then, you know, we also have co op ones where it's complete uh Complete one campaign level on co-op, and then complete the entire campaign on co-op. Which is which is also the best name for a achievement, which is OMG BFF FTW. I love it. Those are I can confirm. I do have those two achievements on Jesse ODST4's account. Uh, someone go check that. <laughs> I do not believe that. And then of course you had ones that came with skirmish. Uh, you know, win a skirmish game with every leader. Win a skirmish game on every map. Went on every skirmish mode. Like, they really tried to pack this in with a lot of replayability because not a lot of these, you know, are easy. They're, they're very time-consuming. Yeah, and, and especially when we get to skirmish and multiplayer, things like that, it's really pushing you to step outside of maybe the one mode that you play mm-hmm. and to try and, like, push you to do a bit more, play with all the leaders, you know, things like that that'll make you say, like, oh... I didn't know about that leader. Let's play that leader. Let's figure these things out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's definitely like a really good start to the Halo Wars universe in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we had, 
I God, I I love the the achievement names for this because in multiplayer you have win a matchmaking skirmish game on Xbox Live and it's called Noob No More, but it's typed with it's got some elite speak. Yeah, kind of elite speak. You know, uh, you had get the highest score on Xbox Live matchmaking skirmish game, which is so lonely at the top. It just uh, you know also these ones reach level of recruit or lieutenant or general on Xbox Live. Pretty cool. And then we would see more coming in from the DLC. One and done. Score the winning point in a game of Keep Away against Legendary AIs. That was a game type that was introduced in there we'll talk about here soon. Uh, living, loving bug. Obtain a scarab in a reinforcement game. Or tour coming through. Hot drop. Hot 50, drop. Hot drop 50 units to your leader in a single game on Barons. By the way, there's there's a lot more. We're not going to list off every one. I know if you're a member of our Patreon, you get access to all of our notes. So if you really want to read through all these achievements rather than Google it, by all means, we appreciate it. Yeah. But then, yeah, some some miscellaneous ones that stick out are like unlock 20 timeline events and then unlock all the timeline events. Also, <laughs> they're really pushing for it. You had the achievement ready for the sequel, which is complete the game 100%. And then 24 hours of quality, which is play Halo Wars for a total of 24 hours. Just throwing those random time ones in (laughs) as they do. So yeah, then you have the secret one, like complete mission one on any difficulty, complete act one on any difficulty. Yeah, it's just, it's complete. Once you complete something, it's like, Mm -hmm. here's an achievement. Yeah, so overall, again, some really interesting, challenging ones. And you got to appreciate that. So now let's move on to the multiplayer. And so with the multiplayer, like all Halo games, Wars would have a strong emphasis on bringing all of us together Mm -hmm. to kill each other. Exactly. Kill your friends. Kill your friends. The Wars multiplayer community was strong when the game initially launched, but in July of 2009, due to a technical glitch, all leaderboards were erased, a.k.a. whoever was in second place didn't like it and destroyed everything. (laughs) No. Uh, Though Microsoft looked into it, they would never be recovered. Though Microsoft looked into it, they would never be recovered, leaving fans to wonder how much support was really being put into Wars post-launch. I mean, because I think it's tough to say because... It it was not much. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah, because you fired the whole team. You got a skeleton crew just kind of making sure things worked. Yeah, and doing some DLC. Yeah, and then as, as we talked about a little bit earlier, when Ensemble shut down, Robot Entertainment came in to take over the multiplayer and the the DLC until December 2010. Yeah, afterwards, Microsoft would take control of all updates to multiplayer, saying that HaloWars.com would be shut down and the forums were now on Waypoint, but Wars would actually see the leaderboard scoring, etc., everything completely shut down. So, you know, after then, support just stopped. We did Not a lot of support happened. It was only for a few years, and then just they didn't care. It's pretty much what we're hearing now. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Wars 2 didn't even do as well as Wars. Yeah. So I'm surprised it's made it this long. But yeah, multiplayer would appear once again with the release of the definitive edition of the game. But at this point, good luck playing it because you will see a lot of threads talking about the definitive edition multiplayer being down. 343 is continually trying to run with it, but it's just... And by all means, if you told me tomorrow it was canceled, I'd believe it. Like, I haven't played it at all with the Definitive Edition, but, I mean, there's there's there was not a lot of support going into Wars 2, so why would they put that much into the original Wars? Like, 
Yeah, I mean, you can still play the game. It's just servers for multiplayer and things like that might be scattered. Yeah. So the most popular game type for multiplayer is Skirmish. This game type allows you to fight AIs or another player on multiplayer maps and has two modes, Standard and Deathmatch. The difference in these are the tech levels that you start at along with the number of resources you start with. In Skirmish, you also have the option to play as the UNSC or the Covenant and as you were kind of talking about with me before we started recording is uh, play as the Covenant. Yeah. Because <laughs> it wasn't that balanced. Both factions would be, you know, it was supposed to be more balanced against each other, relying on the, the player to figure out a winning strategy. This gameplay was also intended to be less like the campaign, fast-paced and chaotic and more strategic. Back, De- back to the roots of mm-hmm. more of like an RTS. Yeah. D- uh, Dace Pottinger said that Skirmish is the closest gameplay that you would get to the Age of Mythology. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you're looking for a marriage of the both, then do Skirmish. So now let's move on to the default maps that did come with the the game itself before the DLC. Mm-hmm. So we have Beasley's Plateau. And this map has four starting bases and six empty bases. And this is the only map in Halo Wars that would feature a Forerunner life pod. Mm. And there's also clear signs of an old Oni base due to litter on the map. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, it's it's uh, it's part this map is likely part of the Oni base complex that we see in the level Dome of Light. And also, this is the only map in Halo Wars where the Covenant can build a human defense turret, because why not? Mm-hmm. And also, there are rebels present on this map, but it's unknown how long they've been there, considering that. If the Oni base was still operational, they would have not been able to stay in the area. Yeah. So between that closing and now. And then we have a familiar name coming mm-hmm. right on up for us in a very familiar map, Blood Gulch. Mm-hmm. So this map has two starting bases and two empty bases. Bases on either side have been removed and replaced with base sites. On the opposite side of the canyon from the teleporter exits, which remain in the same places, two neutral faction bases were added. The caves have been removed and replaced with platforms, just flat platforms for you. Mm-hmm. Rather than being in the bases, the teleporters are behind them, because obviously you can't be in your base Yeah, going through it. The map has almost rotational symmetry, unlike Blood Gulch. Mm-hmm. Even though the map is bigger, the hills are smaller, and it's just more line of sight for your characters. Yeah. Though the map is graphically updated, the theme is still the same, and the same music that plays the quote-unquote neutral forerunner also plays when encountering the rebels. Yeah. So now then we have Chasms, which this map contains two starting bases and two neutral bases. Chasm is the only map available to play in the Halo Wars demo skirmish mode. And some of the areas were blocked off to this map, making it... Uh, some of the areas were blocked off to make this map into an advanced tutorial area when mm-hmm. doing skirmish. Then we have Crevice, which this map has four starting bases, four empty bases, and two flood bases. The map has a night and day feature as well. And the map also has several crashed Forerunner transport ships on its surface. They're similar to the campaign cutscene Forerunner ships, but much smaller and varied slightly in shape. Also, after all the flood swarms in the center are killed, a large cache of resources crates will spawn. And finally, on the left side of the map, best seen of the flying unit in two separate ditches, there is a Covenant ship of the same class as the one in release. 
There we go. And now we have the docks. This map has four starting bases, four neutral bases, and two empty bases. The official reason as to why the level is called the docks is currently unknown, which I don't think anyone's going to dive into. But <laughs> no one it is believed cares. that it refers to space docks. However, this is only speculation. It may relate to jetty docks used to hold boats, but since there are no boats, not even any water aside from a fountain, this is unknown. So it's just up there. Let's let's see your theory, Halo Cannon. Bring it on. <laughs> it is possible and likely that it is part of the cargo port seen in the mission Arcadia City, as directly between the two sides is a single landing pad similar to the ones from the aforementioned mission with a pair of control towers. Uh, maybe the, that may be the explanation. It may be from there. Maybe. We're not going to do a theory episode on this. Don't ask. So just the docks. <laughs> so we then have Exile. Not a lot really going on. Nothing interesting to say about this map other than it has six starting bases, six empty bases, and four flood bases. So it's a huge fucking map. It's, it's, it's a big map. It's kind of like one it's of those big for, sandbox maps. Yeah, it's good for three for three for mm-hmm. sure. We also have Frozen Valley, and this map has six starting bases and ten neutral bases. Again, huge map. So Frozen Valley and Barrens are the only levels in Halo Wars to feature the Forerunner Spire of Healing. On this map, luck will determine which two players have the tactical advantage by having their default bases near the Forerunner Bonus Reactor. And on a 3 vs. 3 party teams, many players use teamwork to share a bonus reactor in order to research their higher tech level required upgrades. This is a very useful tactic as it means a Covenant player no longer needs to research the Age of Reclamation and a UNSC player no longer needs to build a fourth reactor or upgrade two. Perfect. Now we've got 14. This map has six starting bases and eight neutral bases. Got another big boy. Mm-hmm. From a real-world perspective, the level is named after Tim Dean, one of Ensemble Studios' senior designers. During gameplay, players of Spartans may comment that the planet has 80% the gravity of Earth. Cool, nerd. Neat. <laughs> and then, then we have Perth Outskirts. This map has two starting bases and two neutral bases. Perth, the real-life city in Australia, may have been named for Perth... With an I and not an with E. With an I in the game. Or Perth in the game was probably named after Perth... You know, no, like, Perth from Australia was named after the Halo Wars map. You're right. They renamed Australia uh, way back when. It was like, that's going to be in Halo. <laughs> Near the west edge of the map, there is a destroyed Oni base. And the working name for this map was Clover, as the tree line that surrounds the map looks similar to a four-leaf clover. And they decided, hey, I don't like that name. Where am I? I'm in Perth currently. That's Perth with an I. <laughs> so yeah, moving on, we have Labyrinth. And this map has four starting bases and six forerunner bases. And a foreigner structure that emits energy beams similar to the one found on Installation 04 can be found in the corner of this map. We'll call back to CE. So the protector units also can be found protecting... Or a little call up, because we're not there yet. Oh, shit. A foreshadowing. <laughs> so the, the protector units also can be found protecting the Prophet of Regret. And if he is the player's chosen leader and the upgrade is Ancestral Perversion is researched. The Prophet of Regret can be given any type of protector from either factory, but when the upgrade Ancestral Perversion is researched, the Purchase Protector will replace one of its offensive protectors that he gets from the upgrade, so it is advised to give the Prophet either a Healing or Shield Protector. It's a lot of peas and all that. Yeah, that was a mouthful. I'm sorry, guys. Pop, pop, poop, pop. We, we have Release, and this map has two starting bases and three flood bases. 
crash on the planet's southwest side of the map, there is a never-before-seen flood-infested Covenant ship. Mm. It bears a striking resemblance to the infinite Sakur from Halo graphic novel. It is possible that they are the same type of ship. And in retrospect, I can't even remember how that looks. No, I remember now. Okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just remembered right now. Wow. Now, this is the only map that features a relic capable of releasing flood upon the enemy when it's garrisoned with troops. Instead of uh, presence of rebel bases and foreigner forts, flood colonies take their place with the tentacles instead of turrets, but have no combat forms guarding it, which leaves the colonies less defended. Easy money, baby. Mm -hmm. So there are also various forms of flood that can be released in this map, allowing the player to approach them before the campaign levels containing the flood. Now, new players might be confused when releasing the flood as they might go to the one closest to their base, causing them to attack their own base. Yeah, so you're kind of thinking like, ooh, I'm going to get this on the enemy, like I'm going to try and like take it out, but mm. really you're just kind of screwing yourself. Yeah, and so all the flood colonies will have two flood routes and both relics will have one flood route guarding it. All flood routes have a one-star veterancy by default, and it should be noted that the base site in the upper middle of the map is a flood colony, which also has a flood launcher just north of it nearby, which is a severe threat towards infantry units. Also, infantry infected by the flood will be listed as an infected unit type in the end game scoreboard under military and squads built and lost. I love those little like little detail things you throw in instead of just like dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got repository. This map has four starting bases and four forerunner bases. Repository is one of two multiplayer maps to include the Sentinel Factory, the other one being Glacial Ravine. There you go. And then we have Terminal Moraine. This map has four starting bases and six neutral bases. The term Terminal Moraine is used in glaciology for a deposit of rocks, soil, and debris at the farthest extent of the glacier. The forerunner bridges leading to the middle bases will occasionally shut off. Any ground-based units, vehicles, and infantry on the bridge when it shuts off will fall into the void and die. See ya. Unfortunately, they don't get their own splash grant at the end that says bridge death. Bridge death, no. That See, one now they're just being lazy. Now that, that, that one, being that one bridge death. Because that's, <laughs> you know. And then to end off all the default maps, we have Tundra. This map has two starting bases and four neutral bases. It is encouraged that air units be mainly used for recon on this map. If fired, the mega turret can destroy two blessed warehouses by firing directly between the two or a temple with a certain shot. Now, the easiest way to capture the mega turret in a standard game with UNSC is to build up to six to eight flamethrowers and a marine squad using a flashbang ability to stun the rebels. Then use the marines to garrison the mega turret. If a, your enemy has a vehicle or infantry-based force, it is advisable to take a sniper tower with barriers and halt their forward progress. When they try and attack your units in the towers, you can send reinforcements to deal with the attacking forces. And that brings us, with our default maps done, and over to our DLC maps and content. Yeah. So, you know, some of the game types were released were Keep Away, which is Capture the Flag. You have Tug of War, which is Earn Points by Destroying Units with Large Armies. And then you have Reinforcements, which is the player gets units and reinforcements. Yeah. And it's, it's I'm glad they've added it. I mean, obviously, like we talked about that replayability. Mm -hmm. It's something that needed to be added that wasn't just a skirmish map. Yeah. That actually gave you more objectives to do, which is pretty awesome. And the first of that in the maps was Barons. 
Barrens and Frozen Valley are the only two levels in Halo Wars to feature the Forerunner Spire of Healing, as we talked about before. Mm -hmm. It is the first map to feature the Flood Egg, and some players have noticed that it resembles an S, similar to how Memorial Basin, coming up, resembles an X. That's, yeah, I mean... Just, just eventually, fun, fun things that maps I eventually look like. I want an A map, a B map. Dare I say a C map? Oh, possibly. And a then we just go. V map. V. Oh, you bastard! You How know. dare you? You never know. So Memorial Basin is our next one, and this map has four starting bases and four neutral bases. This map has the most starting supply crates and garrisonable covers of all the maps, and this map is also the smallest two v two map. So it kind of gives you this to me seems more like what you'd really want to play capture the flag because you can like station a bunch of people around to kind of keep eyes out uh -huh. with all of that stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a fun map. Yeah, and then we have Blood River. This map has two starting bases and two neutral bases. Blood River features a forerunner bridge similar to that seen on Terminal Moraine. However, unlike the the bridge seen on Terminal Moraine, this one does not shut off, so it is absolutely useless. Minus, <laughs> it's a, minus it's a terrible regular bridge. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, we have Glacial Ravine. This map has three starting bases and four rebel bases. And this map and repository are the only maps to feature Sentinel factories. Now, originally, this map was going to be included in the historic battle map pack. Due to a lack of three versus three maps, however, Robot Entertainment decided to place it in the map pack. Frozen Valley was used as the base map for Glacial Ravine. Hence, the two maps are very similar they're just being lazy and copying stuff. Copy how lazy? It. How Copy and paste lazy? It. <laughs> That's how it works. And it is the first map to feature two neutral factions. So there you go. Lots of firsts. But yeah, so so that was kind of a breakdown of all the maps as we did in Halo Three. So you know you have your little trivia and fun little things, and you can go online and look up. You know, every map has its own page on, like, say, Halopedia of just countless strategies on, like, how to work these maps and what's mm -hmm. the best way to do. We kind of gave you some, but, you know, definitely, like, Halopedia was a great source for all of that yeah. for us to, to give to you. So now let's move on to, as I always say, my favorite part of these game episodes, which is the music. So... Stefan Rippey was the composer and writer of the Halo original soundtrack, along with all the music played. An interesting thing about this guy is he's a self-taught composer. Hmm. And in college, he only took a handful of classes. He basically started, you know, when he was in middle school and high school, and he would just buy some recording equipment, record on his own, and just build up from there. And eventually his brother worked for Ensemble, he was brought in, and he worked on a few games for Ensemble, Halo Wars being the last one he did. When it came to the soundtrack, Stefan Rippey said, For Halo Wars, I wanted to write music that both fit the size of the story and the sense of discovery. Kind of going back to the roots of mystery and discovery and, and whatnot, and I, I thought he did a good job. So, amongst all the elements of the game being out of the hands of Bungie, this did include the music. The soundtrack was composed by Stefan Rippey, who had previously composed the Age of Empires and Mythology games. The soundtrack contains 25 tracks and has a runtime of 53 minutes and 57 seconds. That's not including the bonus tracks we'll talk about here in a second. And I highly recommend, if you haven't listened to like any of the Age of Empires stuff or Age of Mythology stuff, it's really unique and it makes sense for you know what he said about Halo, like the way he wants to 
build it in for Halo Wars. Mm -hmm. It's super unique to the games. You hear it like all the time as the background music or as like title screen music going through it. Uh -huh. And it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Unlike Mosa Bungie, who was resilient to work with Ensemble, Martin O'Donnell and Michael Salvatore were willing to work with Stefan as much as possible to deliver a faithful soundtrack to the franchise by reviewing work that Stefan had written for the title. Stefan actually sent them a CD of the music he had written for the game halfway through his writing process. Now, the soundtrack is a mix of elements from previous Halo tracks, along with discarded tracks that were meant for Age of Empire or Age of Mythology games. Stefan would state that the Spirit of Fire theme had to resonate with fans and that that's why he added all the monks in the background and kind of had that halo theminess in there. Yeah, you gotta, gotta throw some, some Gregorian chanty monks in. You gotta mm -hmm. have it. Yeah. And so the soundtrack took a little under a year to write, and when it came to recording... Stefan would actually look to recording in Prague in the Czech Republic for the choir due to low costs and Stefan loving the city and the orchestra. So, you know, he had plenty of reasons for it. A, a little bit of a, was, you know, business and pleasure when exactly. he went there. He would also record the piano parts in Seattle along with doing all of the mixing there. Stefan would record the guitar, synth, and multiple percussion pieces himself. Yeah, kind of like how how Marty has done with some some things. He's he's done some of the Gregorian chants or monk stuff or some of the piano for the other Halo soundtracks. It's like Marty Jr. going yeah, through Yeah, Marty Jr. So Halo Wars also had music playing during the skirmish games and would change to reflect the environment that the player would be in and the soundtrack would also incorporate itself in the game based on where or what the player were doing like previous Halo titles. So in January of 2009, it was announced that the game would have an official soundtrack release. The soundtrack was released February 17th, 2009 on CD and digital download through Something Else Music Works. The soundtrack would include a bonus DVD with nine bonus tracks. Now, now we're really going to date this the this uh, <laughs> game. Users who subscribe to AOL Radio could also get an early premiere of the soundtrack playing a new track every hour. So I know there are some listeners out there who don't know what AOL is or AOL Radio, but that was a that was a long time ago. Yeah, way back ten years ago. <laughs> but no, that that definitely does date it because that that stuff isn't like a thing anymore. I remember I would discover music through Yahoo Music when I was a kid. Like, I'm I limed wired it up. <laughs> well, oh, I trust did, me, I did too. I did what I gotta do. That's again something you you young Gen Zers don't know. <laughs> So, four tracks from the Halo Wars soundtrack would be featured on the Halo trilogy, the complete original soundtracks. Because I, th I think, you know, what people may or may not say about Halo Wars, the soundtrack really, really resonated. Well, like you said, if, if you take anything away from this gameplay, mm -hmm. the cutscenes are beautiful, the story, in my opinion, is pretty cool, and the music's awesome. Yeah, so Stefan was able to stay faithful to the theme of Halo, along with Marty's ideas of mixing classical, drums, electronic, and guitar into a soundtrack to deliver a unique experience to the player. When it came down to the soundtrack, Martin O'Donnell had this to say about it. I thought he did a really nice job with music for Halo Wars. He He's, also, he praised, I mean, he praised him. He, he thought, he, like, with his hands off and having another composer go through this... He thought he did really well. Yeah, and he, he liked him, too. He's like, yeah. this is a good guy. You know, he he stayed faithful. And, well, and I think it comes down to, too, like, seeing the tenacity 
and the work ethic that he had where he's like, here's my tracks. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going over here to record this. I'm getting it here. I want to get this done. Like, it's awesome. Yeah, I, I want to get fired already. Get me out of here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So now let's move on to the release versions of the game. We have the original, and then we have the collector's edition, which we will announce the winner of our giveaway at the end of it for that collector's edition now the collector's edition would include halo wars genesis kind of this mini pre halo wars comic book the halo 3 mythic map pack six leader cards the unsc spirit of fire emblem patch and in, an honor guard wraith you know kind of like a, a downloadable content yep so then we had the platinum hits and then we had the definitive edition this version would include updated graphics new achievements and dlc content available on pc and xbox one handled by behavior interactive initially ensemble had no plans on porting the game to pc due to the fact that the controls were created specifically for console even though Halo Wars did eventually come to PC, a lot of players would still use an Xbox controller when playing the game. And it makes sense. I mean, it's built for it. Yeah, and it, they literally were like, we don't want to do this. That, that wasn't even like a Microsoft thing. They're like, personally, this shouldn't be on PC. Microsoft's like, fuck you, it's coming on PC eventually. <laughs> yeah. The Definitive Edition would also be available on the Ultimate Edition of Halo Wars 2. It's two for one package. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, kind of a release version, not really. Halo Wars would get its own version of Risk, which I, I loved playing that game. It was super fun. Yep. It's Risk, but Halo. <laughs> no, I, I was never like the biggest Risk fan, but I think it's one of the things with RTS as well. The second you get in that, you know, quote unquote Halo mindset, it mm -hmm. becomes like a little funner. No, it, it, it does. I mean, it, it's one of those things where like you throw in something you love into another thing that you're playing. You're like, oh, it kind of matches together. Yeah. So now let's move on to the general reaction of the game. Halo Wars was the RTS console game everyone was waiting on. It's regarded as the first RTS game on the console done right. And Chris Taylor, a gaming entrepreneur, even admitted that Wars was done so well, he stole ideas from it. Just blatantly said, you know what? I like that. We're going to steal that. That's how well he liked the game. There you go. And originally, Halo Wars, as we said earlier, was projected to sell 2 million copies because we had about 2 million downloads, mm -hmm. hoping those would turn over into B sales. Yeah. But it fell short of this projection and only selling 639,000 the first week, 17% of what Halo 3 had sold, so it's only 17%, and only selling 1 million by January 2010, which would see the game re-released as a platinum version. Though this was three times as much as Command & Conquer 3 sold, to date it is still the best-selling console RTS game. So is that great? Is it, you know, it kind of goes back and forth with it. Yeah. And do, do those low sales mean that we shouldn't be doing RTS on console? Or, or is just, it so niche? Yeah. So it goes back and forth with that. And by March of 2010, 2.6 million matches had been played adding up to a total of 118 years. Even though that was like, that happened in like 24 hours of, yeah. of, of Halo 3. But I mean, different audiences. So for most non-RTS Halo fans, this game would seem to be welcomed by them. Like, mm -hmm. you know, just like, hey, this is cool. Like, myself included. I'm not an RTS guy, but you, you put Halo on it. I put on those, those rose rose-tinted glasses, and I'm instantly like, cool, I love this. Though many hardcore RTS fans disliked the straightforward battles, the emphasis on action, and the inability to create bases wherever they pleased, others would critique Halo Wars for being, quote-unquote, StarCraft for the console. Fans felt that they got a stripped-down version of a good RTS game. 
Despite these criticisms from hardcore RTS fans, the game would still receive mostly good reviews. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the scores that it got. Yeah, so we're seeing at Metacritic, got an 82 out of 100. OneUp.com gave it a B. CVG, 7.9 out of 10. Eurogamer is an 8 out of 10. Game Informer gave it the top of a 9 out of 10. GameSpot lowers a little bit at 6.5 out of 10. Well, they're just fucking prudes. Ooh, and then GameSpy, giving it that 4.5 out of 5, bringing it back up. Mm -hmm. IGN is an 8.5 out of 10. OXM in the UK gave it a 9 out of 10. And Xplay, rest in peace, gave it a 4 out of 5. Yeah, I mean, overall, kind of the average score, it was like, it was like a, a low B. Yeah. It got a low B, which... So far, it's like the worst rated Halo game, if you think about it, at this point when mm -hmm. we're covering the episodes. Now, now I included this because th these were things that were being said after the game was released. And we'll talk about kind of the, the transition of 343 Industries coming around at this time with our Halo Reach episode coming out mm, sometime next year. But so, so think of this fact being told like back in the 2009 mindset when Halo Wars was all said and done. Frank O'Connor admitted that 343 Industries would be open to another Halo Wars project and possibly even some nuances to go along with it. Yeah, so so kind of keeping it open that, I mean, you know, it could be in the works. Yeah, like basically as back as 2009 or 10, 343 was already like, let's keep that concept of another one on the back burner. Yeah. Like they, 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 they wanted to do it. So I, I think kind of that reflects of why we got another one, and this wasn't just something that came up out of the blue. And it wasn't something that had to be done. It wasn't like a bungee contract that's like, nope, have to do a Wars 2. Yeah. I think it was something that like 343 like probably pushed for. And I think it was a gung-ho-ness of having to come in and step in Bungie's shoes of like, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do that. We're going to do another one. Fuck it. Mm -hmm. We're going to make it way better, but not really. Ugh. So now let's move on to the final part of the episode is, what did we the hosts of Finish the Fight, a Halo podcast, think about this Halo game. So I'll, I'll start with it just because I've talked about it a few times. I'm not an RTS guy. Not that I dislike it. Uh, you know me, I play on normal difficulty. So games where I have to think aren't my thing. But that being said, I, I enjoyed it. I remember playing it. I, I beat it on co-op with my buddy Wayne. And, and I think for a Halo story, it tells just that. I think it tells a great story I think the gameplay was toned down just enough for an RTS layman like myself to really get in and indulge in it. I can definitely see how those hardcore fans, like like you, Alex, you're, you're a huge Age of Mythology guy uh, and Age of Empire guy, like how people would not like that. I can get it. So I, I see it from both sides. But for me, I, I really liked the game. Awesome cutscenes, especially, you know, as I said, I think one of everyone's favorite cutscenes are... You know, Forge versus the Arbiter number two, along mm -hmm. with the Spartans taking all those elites. And they put a lot into this game that I think they didn't have to. And I think as a whole, it, it is a good Halo game. Like, yeah, I, I don't have too many complaints about it. You know, some some shoddy writing. And the, the I, I know th from reading from some developer interviews that they they didn't have an understanding of the lore and some of the lore was pretty basic stuff that I think if you just read The Fall of Reach, you would have known. So it was odd to me that sometimes, like, you, you see, like, those those things come up. But, we, you know, with that being said, I, I still loved the game. Like, what about you, Alex? It was good. Um, I mean, it's playing it again when we set this up and kind of going through it, the campaign and whatnot. It, it brought back the cutscenes. Uh, I'll say that much. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not a huge fan of, of 
campaign of any like RTS campaigns. I'll mm -hmm. say that uh, just because a lot of them for me are just kind of tutorial get through this. I like to play multiplayer with other people, uh -huh. AI, just mess around and build bases and not really have constraints on me, I guess. Yeah. In a way. But I think they did it very well. I thought them, you know, fighting on the ship was just a unique way of continuing the story, but allowing you to be part of it and not just be a cutscene. That like you had the flood on there and then they died and then you cleaned out these people and you left. So I think that was done really well. And the multiplayer aspect, like I said, it was really weighted towards the Covenant, especially having scarabs and things like that. It's pretty much who you'd pick. So, so balance-wise, it was a little bit off. I didn't play it too much after up. It's only played it at launch for a bit, and kind of set it down after that. I don't know too many people. I think I think my buddy Wayne and I did a handful of multiplayer matches. Yeah, I, I played a couple of them, and I want to be the characters I wanted to be. I, I don't like like min maxing games. And figuring out who the best character is, what strat, I like to just play. So I, I'm not a really great competitive RTS person. Mm -hmm. So when it boils down to actually playing with people like that, I was like, eh. eh. So, but for the most part, I'm glad they did it. I'm glad they expanded out of the first-person shooter realm, tried something different, and then tried it, you know, then 343 tries it again later. But overall, I, I, I'm welcome to it. I'm glad it's there. I'm glad it's an opportunity and an option for even non-FPS players to play something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think, I, I would like to think that this kind of turned some people on to RTS, maybe did their research, said, who, who are these ensemble guys? What are these games? Maybe then they play the Age of Empire, Age of Mythology games, and, the, and it kind of opens their eyes a little bit. And I, I think that's where it lost me, too, is I, I really loved, with both those games, you, you, you are stuck with your city center, so that's kind of the one thing that you are locked into because you'll find abandoned bases that you build a city center on. Mm -hmm. But I think what they were kind of talking about before of like having customization in the base, you can then build your houses or your barracks or your greeneries and whatnot kind of wherever. And uh -huh. I love the resource gathering in that as well because you send out individual villagers to go, to go and harvest trees, gold, kill animals or farm or whatever you need to do yeah. to build up these ages, get these units um and play stuff like that and you can build walls mm. so you can build century turrets walls things like that so i think i understand what people are saying that they got like this dumbed down stripped down version of a good rts mm -hmm. like there could have been more involved but would you want all of that complexity on a controller yeah and that's they they did it for a reason that's why they said it's like an action or arcade rts I appreciate it, and the fact that they, they, they made the best out of a shitty situation, kind of a setback one after another. First, they're like, we don't want to do RTS titles anymore. We want to kind of, like, we have potential. Like, let's show your potential. Mm -hmm. Microsoft's like, fuck you. You can't hire any more people because we already spent a lot of money on you. That limits them. Yeah. And they say, okay, we're going to do this this console RTS. It's going to be the best thing you've ever seen. And they say, well, you're going to do a Halo RTS. And then, you know, you have Bungie who's pissed off at them saying, well, why? This is our baby. How dare you do that? And it's just like, I can, I can definitely feel for them. I could see, yeah. like, how it, it's a shitty situation. I, I completely get it. And like I said, I, I appreciate the products come out of it. I think it is a fun thing to just kind of pal around with. Yeah. Um, is it something that I want to necessarily play as me, Alex? No. Uh, it's 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 not, and I'm, I've played a handful of Halo Wars two already. Played with a couple of some of our members, and it's fun with friends. I'll say that I, I don't like playing against other people because one of the big things that we'll get with later with Halo two is there's a lot of DLC that's been involved, a lot of DLC characters that 
people prefer over others. So, you know, it's hit or miss for me. Yeah. I mean, overall, I don't know. It's, it's, it's playable for me. How replayable it is, is a, a completely different story. I think I beat the campaign three or four times that fourth one being for this episode but overall it's you know i i think i don't think it's a game that needed to happen but i appreciate that it did happen yeah i want to give it about a 3.5 out of 5 i don't know if i keep doing out of 5 or out of 10 for these episodes but today today it's a 5 3.5 out of 5 for me just saying overall i appreciate the idea and the concept and you know this was one of the more fun re- research ones to do for me just seeing how everything kind of crumbled in the background yeah i i mean i would probably give it probably 37 grunts run over by a warthog 37 yeah 37 grunts run over by a warthog <laughs> by like probably like six uh scarab kind of reactors you have to deactivate so 37 grunts run over out of six scarab reactors you know what i'll take it but yeah, that was our Halo Wars episode. I think this, I was really excited to do this one. You know, the first game episode that we have that is not an RTS. And it was a, it was a different pace. A lot of research went into this. I think this is one of the more, I was researching this around the time that I was also researching Halo 3. So I started doing a little more of a deep dive and it was really fun to do. And of course, a lot of this, Really, most of this is not possible, except for our awesome patrons. Um, so if you're not a patron, it would be super cool if you guys check out our Patreon. We have some really cool exclusive content for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have game nights. We have shirts. We have posters. We have all this really cool stuff that we have with Post it. Post shows. Post shows. So plenty of stuff with it. And as always, we want to thank our patrons as well. Mm-hmm. Give them a little shout out here. And thank our awesome patrons. We have Tactics, Angry Canadian, Baby Z, Skyjack. Charles Zitter, Francis, and Harvey Chong. You guys are amazing and really help us with this as, you know, helping us out doing our content. You guys get some exclusives with it and you're super active in the community, which is super awesome. And if any of you guys have any questions with that, let them know. Last thing for shameless plugs, uh, we have our store. We have both an EU UK store as well as a US store for merch. Uh, we got a bunch of stuff up there. We got some really cool designs coming end of year as well that we'll let you guys all know about and that's 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 my marketing plug right there yeah so you know we we did a giveaway for this one as well every game episode we kind of do some kind of giveaway and we were doing the halo wars limited edition and so with that being said the winner from instagram is embodiment underscore of underscore pride so shoot us a message with your address and whatnot and we'll send it to you you will also get a printed out version of the halo wars notes for this episode which is a lot of you know again months and months of extensive research i did for the development and whatnot and you know kind of just a sign note saying thank you for participating in this because yeah. we do appreciate it because you guys are awesome so yeah that's that's plenty of ways to help out is just kind of go through our instagram we have a discord as well so you can always message us for those things if you're not a part of that already mm-hmm. um and just thank you guys all for supporting us yeah join our discord Discord, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you know, we also have a YouTube, SoundCloud, we're on Spotify, iTunes, you know, leave reviews, give us a like, anything like that on there, it helps a lot, especially with those reviews on iTunes, helps us kind of bump up when you're looking up for Halo Podcast, so you can get mm-hmm. all the sweet content and hashtag detailed walkthroughs from us, because no other podcast on earth 
no matter the genre, is giving you hashtag detailed walkthroughs and the occasional hashtag BB walkthrough. That's what I'm here for. It's never going to happen unless it's from Finish the Fight at Halo podcast. Sure. <laughs> Jesse's claim that I'm not. We'll see. Yeah. So with that being said, I'm your host, Jesse Reiners. And I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And thank you for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a Halo podcast. Halo. It's finished. No. I think we're just getting started. 